Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to this week's Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. We hope you've had a good week and uh, are ready to rip into what Don and I promised the last time, following the money or why are all these agendas that we are, where are these stemming from? And boy, oh boy, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there, Don? Unpack, it's, uh, it would take a month of um, Sundays to actually get close to unpacking it all. The tentacles of this, uh, what, what we will talk about in the end is the ESGs, um, are, are deep, they're widespread, and they've been around and basically getting into our psyche by default for decades now but it seems to be reaching a pinnacle and i dare say um the rally in new zealand a couple of weeks ago where posey parker was attacked um sort of highlights where we are at as a country and then you see things or elements like um the company in new york uh, a fashion company holding a uh, or using a trans actress as they call him Dylan Mulvaney as a brand ambassador. I just don't know where this is all going to end, but uh, it is odd that we've got advocacy groups demanding sort of positioning in society for people with a different view of the way the world should be. And, you know, I've got no real problem with the LGBTQT uh, community, but the exhibitionism and the wokeness that is coming into our institutions seems to be all a bit weird for me. But then what, who am I? I'm just a farmer from Invercargill. But, you know, the odd thing is you get um, people like Caitlyn Jenner coming out, you know, they've, from the Kardashians fame. And he said of Nike, who's also along with Bud supporting uh, this uh, uh, person, Dylan Mulvaney, he said, or Caitlin said, sorry, it's a shame to see such an iconic company go so woke. This is an outrage. So what I'm saying, I think, or what we're getting there is there's not all the support, and yet we've got marketing of particular products being done by companies because they think it's virtuous to do it this way. I think it's a dangerous place for them to be, but time will tell. And. I think there is has to be something more than just the exhibitionism because that's that's what makes us uncomfortable. I, for one, I couldn't care less what anyone else does in their private lives. But why is suddenly all the laundry out there in the public, you know, for everyone to see, everyone to remark upon? Or am I just showing my age, John? <laughs> well. I think you've shown it uh, far nicer than I have. I mean, I'm clearly an, an old dinosaur on this stuff, but uh, I I don't know why it's so front and centre all of a sudden, uh, why minority groups feel so empowered to push themselves into the limelight and the forefront of, of our um, being uh, with such vehemence. I don't get it. I mean, having... Uh, um, even an, a corporate equality index is seems uh, seems something they want to push as well. Well, heck, um, where does it end? I I'm lost here. I, I really am concerned that 
for those of us that have been concerned about um, ESGs, environmental social governance, um, it is political. It is around um, what they would call progressive politics. Uh, I would consider regressive politics, but you know, uh, it seems to be always mandated by the left of the political spectrum more than the center right. And so perhaps that tells the story. Yeah, uh, for our listeners, and we will have show notes for this later on, but uh, if you want to go and look up this article that Don and I are referring to, this is by the New York Post just la last week. And uh, the article goes by the byline of inside the Vogue scoring system guiding American companies. And it's, it's a pretty good article. And you might wonder why, you know, we are talking about this on Greenwashed. But yeah, bear with us. The tentacles of money that come through are very amply evident in this article. Because a bit further down, they go on and talk about it, that why is this happening? What does a company stand to gain from it? Because like it or not, there is going to be some of the other groups that are going to, you know, begin a backlash against this sort of uh, exhibitionism. So the article goes on to expound about the fact that they were going to get points by this ad campaign. And what points are those? Five points possible for workforce protections. Inclusive benefits, there is 50 points for companies in the US that provide healthcare for same-sex couples. Gender neutral dress codes, and trans-exclusive restroom facilities have another 25 points. So all of these point scoring systems, they are on, uh, this is an index called the Human Rights Campaign. This is a group behind this, and they have this index called the Corporate Equality Index. So it does lead somewhere. It leads somewhere, all right. But you imagine if, uh, let's let's Pose a New Zealand farm supply company decides to put this um, corporate indexing into their uh, their statement of intent. Do you think the farmers that are, are in those cooperatives or supply companies will, will be accepting of this stuff, or will they not even bother to care? Will Spites be looking for a southern man for a brand ambassador next year, or uh, somebody else, John? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, of course, we have a new young. New Zealander of the year who um, would like to think that he could be a brand ambassador, sorry, I'm not sure the pronoun to use, um, a brand ambassador uh, for everything. He, he, I will use he because he's definitely got gonads, um, be a brand ambassador for something. He would love to be a, a, a poster boy for the whole country, I think. Not for me, so sadly. So this article goes on to talk about how asset managers BlackRock and Vanguard. We've all heard these names so many times in the last couple of years. These uh, companies are among the top shareholders in most of the big corporations today, and they are big supporters of ESG, which is what Don and I will be going into in detail, following the money. So ESG stands for yeah, environmental, social, and governance. Looking at those factors. So which is beyond 
what what you and I don't might have thought that the remit of a corporation is. Exactly. Uh, this has been an evolution um, of ideas uh, that I generally support. Uh, but when you see the attempts at over time of getting to this point, uh, triple bottom line accounting, um, life cycle analysis, all sorts of stuff. And now we're at these ESGs where directors of companies and uh, fund managers are being told that we will abide by um, these regimes. And of course, on the face of it, they probably seem okay. Um, but when you're a company manager or a fund manager or a company owner, you represent shareholders first and foremost. Now they're representing stakeholders, which isn't just shareholders, it's everything in the, in the whole regime of, of the service that you're providing, the product or the service you're providing. And so it's a bit like we have in New Zealand ACC or um, the RMA, no matter what you look at, it's all got elements of it embedded, but you just can't touch what it effectively um, adds to the business or, or the cost structure. And ESG seem a little bit like that to be a little untouchable, but, but very costly to impose on a business. And a lot of people make uh, a lot of money out of it and on the way through, especially the the big four or five or 10 um, accountancy firms in the world, their names are all over this sort of stuff. And yeah, I, I would like to think you would argue that it adds value, it makes better sense, but it's not definable to me. I can't see uh, how you, the value proposition of an ESG doesn't come inside my, um, my sites, that's for sure. Yeah. And BlackRock, in 2018, the BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, who is often called the face of ESG, BlackRock oversees assets, I think it's nearly to the tune of $9 to $10 trillion. And he wrote that infamous letter, or famous, depends uh, which side of the debate you're on, on the Harvard Law School Forum and Forum on Corporate Governance. The letter was titled, A Sense of Purpose. So this is one of the biggest stakeholders or you know, asset management companies in the world writing a letter uh, towards the start of the year to other stakeholders and pushing in this letter called a sense of purpose, a new model for corporate governance. And this model is what ESG is essentially is. So you see people Suddenly, you see companies across the world. You see companies across New Zealand now. There's bits and pieces going on. You might see one company suddenly announce, hey, we have gender-neutral uniform now to make everyone feel included. I noticed one of our big companies did that uh, in March. You might have somebody else like Allbirds, which uh, the, you know, the iconic Merino runner company, which in the US decided that uh, for its employees, it needs to fund uh, reproductive services and other things. So it suddenly keeps on increasing and increasing. Now, how many of us are there when we are, you know, shopping today in these times where, I don't know about you, costs are really going sky high. 
on everything from grocery to power. How many of us are really looking at that, at those credentials? There are companies in New Zealand that are now just par for the course. They are issuing statements on modern slavery. Ah, it, it blows the mind. What are we doing here? You know, you would have thought that um, there was a bit more trust in mankind uh, or humankind in the in the modern world, but there seems to be this distrust all the time. Now, you don't want people to uh, and companies to be um, using uh, slave labour, as they call it, uh, or, or having unfair working conditions. But but how much oversight does do we need to have on these companies? I mean. It's all about compliance. It's around self-aggrandizement by those um, big, big companies I talked about before around accountancy and and, and consultancy. Um, and I can't see why. Well, it's like the deep state, actually, Jasper. That's mm -hmm. that's my simple analysis. It's the deep state. It's got a body of people, uh, the way I read it, uh, at the top of the pile telling us how, and they're typically influential, really influential people over government policy, basically telling us how we're all going to be. And that world without borders stuff that I talked about in recent uh, interviews or recent radio um, shows, uh, it's there in spades. It's about diminishing the sovereignty of, of even your local businesses, ceding sort of some sort of sovereignty to um to a compliance regime that has been devised uh, in, in, in a room somewhere in, um, yeah, often in Geneva, to be honest, and places like that in Europe. I, I, I don't know why we let it happen. I mean, what's wrong with New Zealand having its own regime? We know what the global uh, sort of system would, would want us to do in terms of food safety or product safety and trustworthiness. Do we need a regime of uh, compliance officers way above that, uh, talking about global harmonisation? Um, I don't think so. I think we should be reliant enough on it, our, our own institutions and our own to maintain our own sovereignty and our own product stewardship. Um, and of course, I'm even sounding like a, a you might argue a little communist when I talk like that because it's <laughs> not it's not New Zealand's products that we're talking about here. It's the individual owner's products, and we should never talk about separate uh, uh, or, or like a collective the way I've just talked about it. It should always be talked about the owner. Uh, I don't want to have to um, justify something on behalf of my neighbour. We're all individuals, and I, you know, I think you've heard of me talk about it before, where, where I support the individuality of, of people and the freedoms that should give. Um, and the respect that that individual should give to the other institutions around. So I don't know. It's a, it's a weird scenario we're under. And, of course, what really annoys me is to have politicians of the moment deny that these tentacles even exist and that we are conspiracy theorists when it's clearly written in so many documents, it's right in front of their nose. And to have uh, other radio stations or television stations not accepting that uh, ESGs or the Sustainable Development Goals or anything from the World Economic Forum is in existence says what to you? It says to me, um, 
people don't want us to know how they're being managed and moulded. Um, so it's our job to expose it, and that's what we're doing, and I'm very grateful uh, for the chance. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad, Don, that you spoke of ECG and STG, so your uh, governance, the new model of governance and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals in the same breath a moment ago. Because all too often, our ministers, politicians, local government, they seem to be completely in denial of anything like this happening. You were there at the meeting nearly two years ago, winter of 2021, when ACT and David Seymour came down to Invercargill on their freedom tour, freedom of speech tour. And my simple, simple question that, David, what do you think about the increasing influence of United Nations on domestic New Zealand policy? And his answer was, that's, you know, that you're a conspiracy theorist. And less than 48 hours later, he was back in Wellington, loudly proclaiming that the Hipuapua was the UNDRAP, that's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People in Disguise. So I don't know, did Seymour have a rethink over those uh, 48 hours, or was it the fact that a whole lot of New Zealanders were up in arms against the Hipuapua, which incidentally is literally ticking off the ESDs there, that what are we doing socially, diversity, and all of that inclusiveness, is did that get him talking about, uh, you know, Hipuapua that, right, uh, suddenly look around the room and, yeah, let's jump on this bandwagon? It's a bit weird, isn't it, um, that that happened to you? And it's a bit weird that it's uh, it was still happening to me as recently as last August where a radio interviewer uh, didn't like my question of him, where I put it back on him to go and study the genesis of all the stuff that's coming down the pipeline at us in, inside the farm gate. Um, he never asked me back. And that was supposed to be a regular slot. So yeah, people don't, it seems that they haven't been willing to face this and uh, it's coming at us faster than um, a speeding locomotive. So why did a political party leader all of a sudden change his tune? Um, maybe he didn't quite understand the depth of feeling that was going on at that time. And it's only, it's expanded significantly since then, since then hasn't it? Um, but yeah, look, let's hope we can unclothe the ESGs uh, ahead, make them go naked in public and make the people that are really um, putting them up front and center of business and governance uh, realize that the consumer is getting a bit sick of this stuff because it's the consumer that pay the price for all of these uh, additional compliances. And it's the producer that often misses out because he, he, he or she gets all those costs back inside his company. So who wins? Well, the way I read it, the only winner in all of these are the big, big companies that manage and, and bring up these bright ideas, the big consultancy firms, the big accountancy firms, and the big legal firms. And of course, they are able to manipulate the politicians of the day uh, as they've done successfully since time began. But uh, really, um, if you think about 
uh, the School of Frankfurt and the Club of Rome and the like, it's really, really been obvious to those of us that are interested the last 70 or 80 years. Yeah. And we, we will, listeners, we will go to the Club of Rome in a bit because uh, Auckland uh, Council's website leads on to it, but that's for a bit later. Right now, what Don mentioned, you know, our leaders not being upfront, not being honest, going completely going ballistic at anyone who dares to question them. For anyone who would uh, care to read Dr. Muriel Newman from uh, the ACT Party, she penned a good article, a great article, and which saw the light of the day in Otago Daily Times a couple of years ago, which it probably wouldn't today, Don. I don't think it'll make the cut today, but yeah, well, it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great article. She talks about all the stuff you have talked about. Um, she, she clearly uh, um, exposes uh, the United Nations Agenda 2030 uh, regime, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, she bowed out of ACT probably about 2006, I'm guessing, maybe even before, but she was one of the four forerunners of the ACT Party and she's continued her, her private um, business in the north and she has that weekly mail out and newsletter and uh gee she is always so well researched and she's fearless she is fearless and she does it in a way that is um really quite engaging yeah yeah she, she, she's not derogatory of anybody she just say puts the facts out as they are and i yeah i i absolutely like reading her articles yeah very objective so this article was november 2020 and it's New Zealand's path to the United Nations Agenda 2030. And she talks about the fact then, and I, this video is available on YouTube for anyone who would care to go and search for it, not that hard. In 2017, Jacinda Ardern was the guest, at, guest speaker at an event organized by Goldkeepers. Goalkeepers is a forum set up by the Gates Foundation, and its job is to see map countries, how far are they on meeting the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. That's the name, Goalkeepers. And Jacinda Ardern said, and I quote, my government is doing something not many other countries have tried. In fact, none others have tried so far. We are again the first ones off the block. We have incorporated the principles of Agenda 2030 into our domestic policy making in a way that we hope will drive system level actions. I believe that the change in approach that we have adopted in New Zealand is needed at a global scale. And Melinda Gates had a very gushing introduction ready for Jacinda, and she said that the Prime Minister has released an international human rights plan in which New Zealand promises to take the lead on gender equality, women, girls' rights, and empowerment, among others, ESG tick. And what did we see two weeks ago at the Posey Parker event? Women's rights, empowerment? No, quite the contrary. We saw activism and exhibitionism and thuggery. And I'm told that they even had to go uh, uh, after that downtown in Aotea Square that um, wasn't that well reported on mainstream media. So 
um, those activist thugs are, are what has been incited by our former prime minister, basically. Yeah. They're, they've, got, they've been empowered. They feel empowered by the former prime minister. Um, let's hope that doesn't continue. So the coalition government that came in 2017, there was uh, a confidence and supply agreement because they needed the supports of uh, the Greens and others. And the parties to that one made a commitment to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The agreement said that the Green Party supports a transformative government which implements the United Nations 17 Goals in this parliamentary term and they'll be supporting all of these priorities. And it's simply that path that we've gone on. SDGs, when you look at them, you know, water, diversity, equality, women, very, very good idealistic goals, but they are anything but that in practice. And that's where you have seen so many people sort of get wonder that why are we up in arms against it? What could be wrong with such idealistic goals? And yet, over the last five years, if there's one thing I've seen, it's a complete destruction of the cohesion I thought the New Zealand society had. I speak as someone who was a rank outsider just over a dozen years ago. A complete mistrust in government? I don't. Well, I, I think your observations are bang on. Um, and I think New Zealanders as old as I am, um, have been comfortably numb to what's been right in front of them had they opened their eyes. And those of us that have opened their eyes, we have been chastised and we get tormented by people who say nothing to see there. Uh, but it is right here, front and centre, and we're paying the price. And yes, uh, the former Prime Minister seemed really lovely. Uh, when she was speaking on the world stage, nothing to see here. Uh, those those SDGs and their nice colourful circles or boxes or triangles with their statements in them appear quite innocuous until you delve deeper into them. And Anything then you but realize, innocuous. yeah, sorry. So it, yeah, she said we have like they we have put in indicators and literally everything to map how well we progress along the SDGs. And as Don said, we could literally use SDGs, the UN goals and the ESGs analogously. There is no difference between these. It is one straight away dovetailing into the other. And, and the World Economic Forum has um, um, their goals and pillars that dovetail into the SDGs as well. Um, they were uh, ratified, I think, about 2020. So it's all there all the same players, all in the same paddock, all with their tentacles going through every institution possible and our universe, including our universities uh, and businesses. And, and we haven't been awake to it. And yet you go back to uh, Antonio Gramsci um, way back into the 20s and he said, uh, you know, in terms of the Marxist ideals, uh, we'll just do the long march through the institutions. And here we are, 100 years on, they're right in front of you. And would, would, would the likes of David Seymour argue against New Zealand being uh, close to a Marxist-governed uh, country? Of course he would. He doesn't admit that at all. He, he, he's basically said there's nothing to see here. Well, you know, 
I think it's up to us to give him the strength to come out and have a look at all this stuff because it's pretty pretty much all around us. Yeah. I Have you heard, Don, have you heard any politician ever refer to the term ESG? I'm seeing it in accounting terms, but any politician? Never. Never have I. And uh, as a director, yes, I saw it in my last few years. I was aware of... Um, uh, of climate accounting and you know IFRA standards that were, were going to perhaps um, that's an mm. international financial standards accounting standards uh, were going to make us do that sort of stuff. I railed against it um, as much as I could, um, and it's still perhaps evolving. Uh, is it going to have the brakes put on it? Well, it doesn't appear so yet. But no, mm. it doesn't, and I. We are now talking each time I hear the word sustainable. For me, you know, it is it is but uh, natural that I go back to ESGs and where I first started hearing the word sustainability. And now, how are, how are these being embedded? So going back to the topic of following the money here or, or following the dictates, where are these coming from? Looking at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employments, papers, or the MB, as it's called, that's MBIE. Uh, they published a paper talking about the international developments in sustainability reporting. What sustainable means, we must realize, it means different things to different people. For Jacinda Ardern, it might mean women's empowerment or disempowerment. To someone in a third world country, like Ethiopia, where you know the UN has run rampant for decades, it just means a full belly. So what is sustainable? That's again, something very, very subjective, but it seems that the word sustainable has been defined for us, regardless of what meaning it has for you in your personal dictionary, your vocabulary. And uh, MB is out there telling us that sustainability reporting is a mechanism for measuring and communicating performance against environmental, social and corporate governance factors, the ESG, environmental, social and corporate. Sustainability reports enable financial market participants, you know, companies, big businesses, it hasn't come down to the smaller ones yet, but I have no doubt, Don, we are all on the chopping block here. It says it will help us to accurately price assets because, hey, suddenly climate change, and what risk are there? And you know, do we devalue the assets or what is their fair value? Improve reputation, stakeholder relations, align branding with consumer preferences and so on. But is it consumer preferences or is it activist preferences? Begs the question there. Well, it absolutely begs the question, Jasper. Um, I would suggest it is activists and, and self-interest. And as I said, um, the control mechanism by crony capitalists. That's what it's all about. Um, uh, crony capitalists are not your friend and uh, they have got inside the institutions and been able to manipulate this sort of system and compliance uh, for their own, their own end, uh, far from being good for you. Now, I would have thought that, as I talked about earlier, I want to be a producer of safe and trusted food products, as do you. Um, 
I, I would like to think that people that do engineering build safe and trusted um, products, like uh, when they build a building or um, a machine. Uh, you'd like to think a fisherman goes out to sea and does responsible fishing. Um, shouldn't have to be answerable to an international agency regime. Uh, and if you look at, as we keep talking about, or perhaps it's my language, the tentacles, you know, it doesn't matter where you look, sustainable business councils uh, all around the world, um, these big companies, these consultancies, they're all pushing their own barrow and they're getting the ear of the authorities to continue to do it. That's the problem. Um, you did talk a moment ago about maybe coming into the, into farming effectively. Well, that MBIE document does absolutely talk about that on page 13. It uh, talks about the importance of a holistic approach to reporting. And of course, whenever I hear the word holistic or agile or nimble or unprecedented <laughs> or expert, I completely uh, raise my, um, my eyes. And on page 14, they talk about it could be that there's a need to report in the agriculture sector, for example, uh, in the future, the agriculture sector businesses could be required to report separately on employment standards and working conditions for employees, feed budgeting and winter farm plans, water quality, biodiversity, greenhouse gas emissions, health and safety, and food safety standards. Um, and it says the ability of companies to effectively measure and report on these factors is undermined if these reporting regimes are developed in isolation of each other and administered by different government agencies. <laughs> so there's no trust by anyone in authority that um, people can do the right thing uh, by their consumer. Um, interesting. Uh, I don't know where it ends, but of course we we have got a show called Greenwashed, and we're we're really wanting to highlight what the greenwashing that goes around, and maybe. It's getting harder to expose it because these companies are getting smarter and wiser. But um, I would imagine there is a lot of greenwashing going on under ESGs. Majorly. For anyone who's just tuned in, Dawn and I are discussing a paper by MB. It's called the Occasion Paper, June 2021, International Developments in Sustainability Reporting. Because this is what tells you why we are headed down the path where we are are headed right now, saddling on our producers and consumers ultimately with huge costs. This paper, Don, also goes on to say that in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Maori businesses and EV trusts are sustainability managing, sustainably managing environmental resources and creating value for their communities. However, the rest of the economy also needs to cooperate and be sustainable. So yeah, there's there's a divide and rule. So let's pick up one particular demographic and say that they are sustainable, but the rest of you, you got to clean up your act. And we are the first ones in the world to suddenly put this into a legislation. I mean, if there's one thing dear leader did, she is certainly keeping up her promises, isn't she, at Goalkeepers? That will be the first country in the world. Jasper, you've highlighted something to me that I skimmed over, I admit. And I find those two sentences the most appalling I've read. Disgraceful discrimination uh, in those sentences, uh, suggesting that 
uh, Maori businesses and iwi trusts are better than the rest of us at managing stuff. How offensive is that? Well, we had uh, James Shaw, wasn't it, when he spoke about uh, the SNA issue when it arose, the significant natural area that councils were mapping. And he spoke about that uh, sometime during this COVID nonsense. And he said that similar thing, and he was speaking in Northland, that most EV businesses are fine. But he said it's that group of Pakeha farmers down south, referring to Groundswell, who don't want to have any sort of, uh, you know, managing a stewardship over the land. And I was like, wow, this is, it is like going back to India all over again. And our politicians pitting us over religion. Here it is ethnicity. What's the difference? Yeah, I doubt you've got a great memory, Jasper. I do remember that. And uh, of course, from the South, we thought it was an appalling statement. But of course, that's what politicians like him can do. They can besmirch the character of another uh, person or, or area when they're not an earshot. They feel brave. Um, I think it's a weakness, but yeah, he would have felt very brave that day saying that. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hope his braveness is, um, is taken to task very soon. But yeah, there's there's a lot in this document. There, uh, there when, is a lot in this paper, the International Trends in Sustainability Reporting. We are amongst the first countries in the world to in introduce mandatory climate-related disclosure. We put an amendment bill, we established this regime, and today, from 1st of January this year, all listed issuers, large banks, insurers, managers of investment schemes, they all have to do this. They all have to have climate-related disclosures. And uh, so, of course, there'll be modeling, there will be consultants, there'll be a revenue stream, which I refer to as a gravy train starting. Of, and there we go on. They talk about momentum in the private sector, that the private sector is demanding this in this paper. They say that calls came from the private sector, nearly everyone that they put a position paper out to agreed. And then this paper goes on and really, truly highlights in an image which they call the sustainable finance work stream landscape. They pretty much tell you who all the actors are here. I, I should appreciate that this diagram, John, very clearly highlighted different colors is, is really good. So they talk about domestic collaborations, international collaborations, lead agencies, the projects, the works. So literally following the money here. Yep, and of course, um, if that was the Hydra, we've got it right here, but some of the heads of the Hydra have got multiple heads on top of the head. <laughs> so. It's a great diagram. Uh, yeah, domestic collaboration. And the word collaboration, as you know, grinds my gears because I know that it's a dishonest uh, concept uh, when it's used in, uh, in a compliance regime, uh, as we've found in regional councils and around the country and environmental planning. The word collaboration got into the parlance and it's clearly uh, been a divisive term. So this, so, yeah, mm? this document's... It, this wiring diagram is great. It's probably uh, the one we should all pin on our wall and see uh, where everything's going. Yeah. So the domestic collaborations. So 
Where are these compliance regimes? What are they called? One of them is the Climate Change Chief Executives Board and Sustainability Chief Executives Board. There is an impact investing network. There's the Aotearoa Circle Sustainable Finance Forum. And we, Don and I, as time goes on, we'll be delving deeper into all of these networks. Today's just a taster of things to come here. Because if there's one thing I think Don and I can both, I think I speak for you, Don, that we can both confirm is that this is like a Medusa on the scale you've never seen, this, this web of these partnerships and collaborations is goes so deep that you could spend, as you said, a month of Sundays and still not get through it. And, and I know it sounds arrogant for me to call uh, this whole ESG and uh, this sort of um, diagram like the deep state, but that's what we have right here. I mean, it's not just Donald Trump that talks about the deep state. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm calling it uh, that sort of thing here as well. And we need to understand what the deep state is, and it is around um, influencers who manipulate. And these people are seriously manipulative uh, in there. And some of these people won't even know uh, why I'm accusing them of no, working. No, they won't. Because they, they've legitimately been employed by, by someone. And yeah, most of them perhaps don't understand the deep um, deep web and regime they're, they're party to. Um, so look, it is uh, up to us to unbundle it, and we will, as you say. Uh, it's going to take some doing, but um, you know, those of us that are in farming can see a serious amount of money going into, for instance, Regian Ag at the moment, uh, or Greenhouse Gas Consortium for um, animal emission reduction and the like. Uh, there seems to be quite a feeding frenzy in there as well, um, all in the name of uh, sustainability. So. Uh, yeah, and we will be speaking to uh, a very well-respected, at least by Don and me, a New Zealand scientist uh, later in the show today, Dr. Doug Edmeets, and uh, focusing on region. But for many people in New Zealand, as Don just mentioned, their experiences on region and the pushing of it have not been favorable. And yet we have had a World Economic Forum just last week release a paper on how region ag is going to be the absolute savior. It's like they have a predetermined path and, you know, hell hath no fury. They, they're not stopping, regardless of how ineffective it may be. It's almost like those vaccines done, safe and effective, regardless. Just carry on, charge of the light brigade. Trust us, we know what we're doing. We are the government. And, and we are here to help. And we're here to help. Interestingly, um, just as an adjunct, and yeah, Dr. Dougie needs us a fantastic interview. The, the, the way they think the region ag story fits in New Zealand to me just doesn't. It's what we've been doing for eons. Uh, when you read what other people, other countries term region ag, so hopefully that comes out in this, um, in this you're here, yeah. So in back to the sustainable finance workstream landscape in MB's document titled International Developments in Sustainability Reporting, there are bonds being issued, green bonds, $350 million worth, uh, another $100 million investment in the Bank of International Settlement Green Bonds. 
there is what 600 million of well-being bonds and 500 million dollars in sustainability bond have they added a couple of extra zeros there don tell me i'm dreaming reading this no but zeros are you're not dreaming zeros are easy to put in when it's other people's money and uh it it if you put it down to every man woman and child in new zealand you would actually think what the heck is going on here no wonder we've got um debt and deficit <laughs> and our governments but i know what we're allowing this to get through i know there's a majority government and yeah in the old days that's what we used to have was pretty much majority governments until mmp came along but um this government i think is the first uh mmp um, majority government you know so they don't need to be in coalition with anyone uh really and we've got the arrogance that we perhaps haven't had for some time but then again but then again, and the key, this is key, these um, regimes, these concepts were all in play uh, for, for as long as I can remember. And they have certainly not just happened since 2020. Yeah, so you're right there. It's not just the Labour government or anything. It is mm. almost like the baton keeps getting handed on to the next one and uh, nothing changes. It may have been a little less restrictive. There may have been the handbrake on a little more leading to 2020 than there is now. But I do remember the former Prime Minister's acceptance speech or the night of, of winning and the, the be kind, be just, uh, you know, having a just transition, build back better and all this, all these slogans. They have been well used uh, in forums like the WEF. Uh, and even probably the Club of Rome, if we analyse it. They've used these words, these progressive leftists, for for decades, and we've been asleep at the wheel. Yeah, we have. And the sustainable finance diagram just shows us how asleep we've been, completely in slumber for like decades, it seems. We have Kiwi Savers being reviewed and, you know, fund managers... Uh, moving to certain the right kind of investing the right kind of uh, places that they think that this would suit the agenda and possibly tick off a few tick boxes of diversity equity and all of those for them uh, interestingly biden joe biden in the us uh, used his veto power for the first time last month and it was to turn over a trump era dictate that pension funds, pension fund managers would not be looking at environmental, social uh, factors when investing because pension funds is a massive amount and uh, it is just too risky to play with other people's retirement money. But uh, Biden's turned that over. So, yeah. Yeah, so maybe the worm is turning. I mean, I think they realize um... And, and we're going to have to realize it pretty soon that uh, the people on the street um, want to keep as much of their earnings as safe as they can. And they don't want to have a preacher uh, from the state telling them where, where they cannot invest. Uh, you know, there, an individual does have the right to say, I don't want to invest in, let's say, arms uh, for, for warfare. But they should do that as an individual. There's no way that um, the dictate should be 
anybody else's to to manage i wouldn't have thought but you know you buy into fund managers um and all of a sudden you're wrapped up in their little world as well so yeah just be aware is the um is what i would say to people and their investments just be 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 up be aware and beware yeah yeah and uh, as time has gone on i don't think uh it is as simple today of fund managers putting your money and say, you know, not putting into armament or other things. I am thinking they've possibly drilled down far deeper in detail and looking for maybe companies that offer uh, time off for reproductive services that have a unisex uh, changing room that offer counseling for, I don't know, a whole lot of uh, things there. but. I don't think it's as black and white, Don, as what you and I would think, you know? Oh, well, it goes right back to that very first document we talked about, about Dylan Mulvaney and the, um, what was it called? The Corporate Equality Index 2022. I mean, these people aren't going to lighten up on it uh, and they're going to try and uh, undermine uh, companies that don't play into this game of um, point scoring for their equality index. There will be There will be agencies who will try to put that on a pedestal and anyone who doesn't comply, they will try and put a black mark against. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's up to real New Zealanders and real investors and people that just want some sort of semblance of normality to, to happen to say, we're not going to be, we're not going to be cow, um, we're not going to kowtow to that nonsense all the time. We've had enough. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't pay our bills, for instance. So no, yeah, it actually it, just it, increases our bills, doesn't it? Well, it it's it, it probably will, and it will also uh, create, in my opinion, it creates more tensions around the workplace rather than uh, what it's supposed to do, which is make things better. Um, you know, I've been in lots of workplaces. I don't think. It, reasonable people aren't the sort of people that that are um, are uh, necessarily going to uh, cause tensions when someone with a different um, personality or gender comes through. You've got to be tolerant. And what the heck is it uh, that we have lost the tolerance, uh, Jean? I think. Yep. And we now, if I look at few of uh, New Zealand companies, you know, I look at, at, say, the warehouse or countdown of foodstuff, this whole reporting regime, the ESG factors there, I can look at any of their websites right now. And what I see there is them. Is that the right pronoun? I think for a company that is the right pronoun, isn't it, Don? <laughs> but it's often worried that so but for any of them if i go there and have a look they are reporting on a whole lot more than the bottom line that once upon a time was uh, the buzzword that right what are you what are you going to be handing out to your sh- shareholders the warehouse group under their uh, disclosures they talk about diversity and inclusion. And the warehouse is talking of far, far, far more detail than what we would expect. They talk about 
the gender pay parity, equity there. They talk about exactly what percentage of their staff is what ethnicity. They talk about the fact that how are they closing some of these uh, gaps that they see. We were talking about this, weren't we, Don? Women and leadership, cultural education. Cultural education, they, we work with Precious Clark, MD of Moria Consulting, to train our leadership team in immersive courses for to incorporate more theory of Maori, Maori history, also as a sounding board for culture, LGBTQA, I'm not up to date with the abbreviations, plus inclusion and support. They are Rainbow Tick certified. The other day, I was logging on to Countdown, putting an online order, and I could be mistaken, but I swear when I typed bananas, there were options available, which ones do I want? Are they Rainbow Tick certified? Or are they not? I often think, like, what have we come to here? I, I don't know where it begins, where, where, where this ends, this nonsense, um, uh, this virtuous behaviour. Uh, who's Well, we know who's continually inciting it, but the consumer has to just say, um, all irrelevant, we don't need these added um, little burdensome costs. I mean, you, you won't see the cost so necessarily, but it is there. There's hidden cost to all of the stuff. I mean, a banana. So, so they a are reporting already, Don. So even though this is not mandatory yet, what mm. is mandatory is just the climate-related disclosures. They are talking of other factors here. ESG, there's, there's a whole lot of social factors that they're talking about, exclusion and diversity and all of that. And looking at foodstuffs, they are not much different over there. They seem to think that we need to have details about uh, what sort of groups, they call it tribes. What sort of tribes have they set up? And again, it's the matter of what was the remit of this business? So they have created, they say, four or five different types, including the Foodies Indian Networking Group right now. Anyone who knows me, or if you hear by my accent, there's a definite Indian here, which is still deep in me. So they are talking about a platform that gives anyone interested in Indian food, dancing, and culture a chance to connect. Then there's women in leadership at Foodies, this is all from Foodstuffs reporting. A rainbow tribe. Uh, again, of course, separatism must be there. So an ethnicity-based different tribe. So there's Indian, there's Maori, there's rainbow tech. God, when I I am, I must be really old. When I used to work uh, at the Citibank in India, there used to be just one team. You know, you want to join cricket or do you want to join something else? And that was all. Here we seem to be like literally looking going looking with a fine tooth comb for as many differences in demography we can find. Why? And then satisfying them all. That's the problem. There is differences. The demographic is full of differences. But satisfying every difference, no matter whether it's a, a one person out of a thousand, just is crazy. I mean, I just have one thing in my head and that is to respect every person on the planet equally. Uh, without, without 
any malcontent unless I am being abused by them, perhaps. Um, and everyone's the same. I don't, I don't expect that I should have to give privilege or they would have should anyone should have to give me privilege. It just doesn't work that way. So, so is it is it that I'm the problem? Uh, perhaps it is. I don't know. What what's your thoughts? You you clearly my thoughts on this is for the last two days, there have been no eggs available at the four square into a tapri. That's that's what my thoughts are. And I cannot buy them. Town is 80 Ks away. For a mother out here, and my chooks are uh, not really very active in this weather here. I need to probably get a dozen, four are just not cutting it. I need food, a reliable supply of some basic protein out in the sticks where I live. That's what I need. That's what my thoughts are on. And I'm sure, despite the fact that you can split me into a migrant, a woman, a straight, uh, Indian, and all of those categories, I don't think I will be that different from someone in Mangari who are going to their local pack and save or countdown or wherever they are to look for a bargain on grocery. It doesn't, that's all we look at these. A hundred percent. Fantastic the way you explained that. And it's, it's who, is the, who are the people creating this division? That's where we need to go back to. And I would argue that the ESGs are having the opposite effect. Uh, than the promoters would suggest that they should have. Uh, they all sound nice. They all sound reasonable until you delve in and you realize I, the subtle. It, it, it beggars belief. I don't care, honestly. I mean, if there's some business wrongdoings or generally a major scandal there, that's different. You know, I am not condoning wrongdoing here. But when I'm going looking for eggs, they are not available. I do not care how many women are there on your boat. I do not care what tribes you have set up. I do not even care much as I love Bollywood music that you have a forum where Indians can connect or those interested and learn some dancing. I do not. I just want reasonably priced eggs, a reliable supply. Is that too much to ask? Well, no, that's too normal. Um, that's that's uh, being a normal um, consumer. Uh, and that's the issue, isn't it? We are just normal. So why are we being targeted as as tyrants and abnormal to uh, to those minority groups? Or and I don't and I don't mean to to besmirch them either. You know, everyone's a, a right to be an individual. All these um, companies promoting the compliance regime and ESGs that go uh, go under them. So I don't know. We I think you and I are normal. Uh, let's hope our listeners think we're normal. Uh, I'll be deeply offended if they're not, but yeah, let, let us know. Let us know. Let us be, the, let's be inclusive, Don. Where we've been talking about this morning about ESGs, or which I would call the woke indices, and how your sustainable development goals and your ESGs, they virtually seem to be one and the same thing, one leading on to the other, our politicians using the words SDGs, your chartered accountants, and uh, most other uh, corporate businesses using the word ESGs, but there's not really much of a difference between them, is there? Well, in the cold, hard light of day, there's um, not a tissue paper between them. So uh, it all means the same thing to me. It means busybodies having a say in the business of individuals in business. And um, I wish they didn't exist because I trust and 
I trust in systems that individuals create, not uh, less or more than I trust uh, in the in the systems big government uh, puts in front of us or big consultancies. So there we go. I just um, I'm different to most people. Perhaps I, I don't want to be controlled by by um, by outside influences that I can't control. Um, I th and I think about it, um, Jasper. It is all about control. Uh, whether you like it or not, these ESGs and SDGs are all about uh, command and control by authoritarians. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. And we've been talking about the fact that, you know, follow the money and what's happening now, but it is, it's worth looking a bit, because hindsight is, is certainly a great thing, and looking back and seeing where much of this came from, and uh, it's sometimes it's really handy when uh, councils like the Auckland Council's website, they lead you to where you should be going here. So what am I referring to? I'm referring to the Auckland Council's webpage on climate change. It is the first page that you land on if you search for Auckland Council and climate change. And it is the overview about energy and greenhouse effect and sun and all of that. If you scroll to the very, very, and I mean the very, very bottom of that page, they come down and they start talking about other organizations this is leading to. The very last paragraph says in circular economy, it says that Finland could up to cut up to 70% of its carbon emissions. France could gain half a million jobs. Sweden could drop emissions by a third and while adding more jobs, read more, says the Auckland Council website on the Club of Rome website. What do you think of that, Dodd? This Auckland Council's climate change page, the very last line of it, leading us to the Club of Rome website and they call us conspiracy theorists. <laughs> oh, I um, yeah, they are luring into the fold. Uh, great that uh, they've put it there because Many of us do know the genesis of this sort of stuff that we've talked about today is um, in the halls of uh, the dark halls of the people that wrote um, the, or were the forebear, forerunner of um, the Club of Rome in 1968 um, and, uh, and how it's worked from that day. And if you go into the Club of Rome's sort of history, a lot of the words our former Prime Minister used in her acceptance speeches and in her narratives were often used in the writings of the Club of Rome. Yeah. So, so I've, I've and clicked great, the... Yeah, and great that Jaspreet's the researcher here, not me. Um, she's ferreted this out. Fantastic, Jaspreet. Well, Jaspreet needs to get a life done, as I often tell you and as my husband would tell you, but yeah. Here we are. So clicking through to the Club of Rome website from Auckland Council's climate change webpage. And I am clicking and going into the publications from this organization. One of those that caught my attention is the one that is called the first global revolution. This publication on the Club of Rome's website is dated 1991. And it says, topics covered by this book include the need for the world to convert from a military to a civil economy, recognizing other disastrous short-term effects of exploitation 
of third world poverty and the containment of global warming, need to reduce emissions, encourage reforestation, and look for alternative energy sources. 1991, I was 11 then, and I was reading Hardy Boys, Nancy Drews, and Andrew Blyton's. I should have been reading this long, long time ago. But yeah. Voila, it's all there. It's all there. Uh... <laughs> so thanks to some uh, person who has taken the pains to put a soft copy of this document called uh, The First Revolution on the internet. I just Googled it, The First Global Revolution, Glove of Rome, and there you go. You find a PDF there. And it is really interesting. All that we are talking of today, they seem to have a crystal ball 30 years ago and got some, some crystal ball here. So I, I beginning down from page 16, and they talk about the, the heading on this page. They talk about the cult of sovereignty has become mankind's major religion. It's God demands sacrifice. Human sacrifice, nonetheless. <laughs> isn't, that very... a isn't that a stunning, um, it's in a box to the listeners. It's in a box on this page and it is highlighted uh, very, very well. And it's very significant. So Karen, yep. you know, go on. I don't mean to interrupt, Jasper. <laughs> it says in 1991 that the very concept of sovereignty proclaimed as sacrosanct by all governments is under challenge and not only as a result of regional communities. It says many smaller company, countries already have very little control over their own affairs as a consequence of decision taken outside their territories. Don't we just know that? Economic policy is modified to contain IMF funding and others. And it says erosion of sovereignty may be for most countries a positive move towards the new global system in which the nation state in all probability will have a diminishing significance <laughs> what did i just such, read such arrogance uh hard to believe the arrogance is there um as we have perhaps observed over our lives our adult lives um how that has played out and now how uh, for instance um those of us in new zealand are expected to for instance um uh, fund uh sort of South Pacific countries uh, who haven't managed to look out for themselves quite as well as they need to. And of course, we've got the threat of climate change and the fact that they may need to repatriate to other other islands or, or countries. I mean, it, it, it's all there in black and white, um, how the globalist agenda wants to play out. Yeah, and I mean, I am so grateful to the Auckland Council for very neatly linking me on their climate change page, which, as many listeners would know, is a particularly bugbear topic of mine. And so, yeah, they tell us to click through to Club of Rome. I do that. I scroll down further and uh, another few pages, they start talking about global warming on page 30 of this document, global warming in 1991. And they say, <laughs> we have always thought of climate as an act of God. It requires an enormous shift in the way we think of the world and a place in it to understand that we have already moved into an era in which we are actually responsible for managing climatic parameters. 
and there is responsible profit to be made in caring for the planet. There's a precursor to ESG when you talk about not profit, responsible profit. Yes, and who signed that off? Robert Redford, founder in, of Institute for Resource Management in Greenhouse Glasnost. Glasnost. And, uh, and that asterisk goes down to the Sundance Summit. Um, so was it the real Robert Redford, the Sundance kid? Maybe it was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This but is... it's, it, it's great reading, this whole document. Um, you've piqued my interest because... It's not the sort of document I could read. But now, then you, you know, if I'd been in 1991, I could not have read that document and even bothered to assimilate it. But now in 2023, it's alive, it's living, it's time. You know, I can now see how it has applied through our life, our recent life, and is being applied more and more each year. This is probably, Don, the earliest reference to methane that I have found in, you know, talking about the split-level gas levies that farmers are facing now in New Zealand. On page 153 of this document, it goes on to say, we have so far concentrated on carbon dioxide, but we have to remember there is others, such as methane, one of the most important. We require more research. Oxides of nitrogen. Well, yeah, guess what? Beef and lamb? We have just been uh, put into this with the Hivakai Kanoa, methane and nitrous oxide. There they are talking of oxides of nitrogen also critical. Their main sources from agriculture and from the present excessive use of fertilizers. And this also raises the question of energy use in agriculture. This is 30 years ago, Don. What were our levy bodies and others doing then? Well, I was involved. Uh sort of at the outset of this, uh, we would agree with one statement there. There's much more research and knowledge to be to be sought under the methane um, discussion. I don't know why uh, the farming groups and the authorities decided that um, things are pretty much complete and they will not ent entertain the very latest of, of science that shows that methane and nitrous oxide are close to irrelevant in terms of warming potential. Um, and there's no dispute uh, that these real atmosphere tests show the reality of those two gases. Um, and yet we still have them being targeted as significant in the New Zealand inventory. Uh, so we've got work to do. Uh, I don't want to uh, get stuck up on it and, uh, <laughs> and on it again today, because it is my hobby horse. But one day, soon we're going to have to have the honesty and integrity of that discussion to the forefront and our levy bodies are going to have to eat some humble pie because they have been off off key on this for some time yeah they talk in this document about uh, increasing scarcity of water and the united nations environmental program officials feel that there are potential international disputes and water needs to be more carefully managed and uh, it is like all there, every single thing that you and I speak about. And so many, as are so many others who are looking at our legislation, seeing how many times in all our resource management plans and others, we are referring to the United Nations IPCC models and you know where climate is going to be and what we need to do. It is, it is all there in this document conveniently 
linked to by the Auckland Council. And it beggars belief, the more I read this, the first global revolution, a report by the Council of the Club of Rome, the more I'm amazed that uh, how come no one else has been talking about this? Well, you're, you're on a, a council. You better see if it's in your climate change um, um, documents too. You might be might be a footnote at the end. We'd better check that. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, though, how it has evolved into the documents that we talked about earlier, uh, the ESGs, ESDGs. This is the precursor to them. Precursor to Agenda 21, precursor to Agenda 2030, uh, precursor effectively to the World Economic Forum's uh, agendas. And yet it's almost like um, they've, they're the carbon copies of what's being talked about here. Completely, completely. Page 159, they talk about the problems of industrial adjustment to lessen use of fossil fuels necessitates in 1991, drawing up of national strategies to respect the quota contribution of each country to global carbon dioxide. And this will also involve consideration of modified processes, equipments, pricing, and other strategies. Countries need to set up national centers for clean energy. And it says, we recommend directly that the United Nations either directly or through a group of its own agencies, convene an intergovernmental scientific meeting to plan a comprehensive world alternative energy project. This matter is very important. We need to employ the best brains and equipment in the world. And yeah, so for anyone looking at you, David Seymour, who still seems to think that the United Nations has no impact because you know I I can't blame uh, Jacinda for lying. She did not. She was there at the goalkeepers uh, conference in New York, proudly saying that we will and we will be the first country to go where angels fear to tread, and put the SDGs into our uh, very domestic policy making. But so many others, nah. And, and of course. Um you'll get a giggle out of this because you and I have talked about this before in earlier interviews about some of the names uh, at the forefront of climate policy in the world. And one was Morris Strong. And here he is on page 149 on the initiative of Morris Strong and the Club of Rome. A meeting was held in 1989 in Denver with some 40 Colorado decision makers to discuss the following question. In what ways do we uh, in what ways do the great world problems affect the economic and social life of the state of Colorado? And in what way can the political and economic leaders of the state exercise an influence or have an impact on these great problems? I mean, his tentacles, and I use that word a lot tonight, uh, today, um, they're everywhere. He was at the genesis of the uh, latest sort of climate change fervor. And there he is in the Club of Rome, um, effectively, documents way back. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is a document, this first global revolution, a report by the Council of Club of Rome. It begins with saying that the very concept of sovereignty proclaimed as sacrosanct by all governments is under challenge and that its dissolution 
will be good for country states. So one can't be surprised at the fact that they're talking of international orders controlling countries and talking of all these regimes that you and I began today's show on, Don. Well, it's interesting. Um, if someone had talked to me about the New World Order 20 years ago, I would, I would have scoffed at it. You know, I thought sovereignty was sacrosanct. And I thought that I was um, being part of a New Zealand community for the good of New Zealand. Uh, I didn't know there was bigger players. I actually did. I, I, as I said, I would have scoffed at the idea of a new world order. But it's quite obvious this is right there, right now. And all the things we've talked about today, like it or not, are party to it. The ESGs are right there. The SDGs are right there. The World Economic Forum's right there. Uh, United Nations, uh, you name, they're all there. So, um, you know, we may get harassed for uh, being so blunt about it, but there's only so much tolerance you can have. And for those of us that haven't got that many years left on the planet, perhaps you want to see things a little better uh, than you know they currently are. Absolutely. And that is what drives us to do what we do. And uh, we will be moving on to an interview with uh, Dr. Doug Edmeads now, but uh, we'll be back picking back on this very same topic again and following the money in our next episode. But for now, we will just link to Dr. Daggett Meads and talk a bit more about farming and region and climate. See you in a minute. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed, and it's our privilege tonight to have uh, Dr. Doug Edmeads from Ag Knowledge uh, as our special guest. And welcome, Doug. Um, we're keen to have you um, as a regular contributor on our show and uh, look forward to, to many more interviews. But in the interim, um, in the beginning, we'll get Jaspreet to introduce you a little bit more. Hello. Thank you, Don, and uh, welcome, Doug. For our listeners, and I'm sure many of us would be familiar with Dr. Doug Edmeets, but here's a list of a brief of what Dr. Edmeets has done in his working life. He has a master's in chemistry, a PhD in soil science from Canterbury University, a diploma in management from University of Auckland. He began his career in 1976 as a soil scientist in Ruakura Agricultural Research Center, Hamilton. He later on became the group leader for the soil and fertilizers unit in 1988. And with the formation of AgriSearch in 1992, Dr. Ed was the national science leader in soils and fertilizer. Dr. Ed has also had a lot to do with overseeing the research project that later on led to the development of Overseer, a nutrient management software that's commonly used around New Zealand. In 1997, Dr. Ed left AgriSearch and established his own company, AgKnowledge, providing farmers with nutrient management advice, publishing technical information for farmers and consultants, and undertakes research on the behalf of clients. So, yes, there is a wealth of knowledge there, and we are very grateful, Dr. Edmunds, you could join us today. Um, I'm looking forward to the interview. 
Well, fantastic. And uh, of course, uh, Dr. Edmeet has got several awards um, uh, to, under his name uh, over many years, including an Anzac Fellow in 1985, through to being a officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit to, for Services to Agriculture in 2013, and, and many others. Of course, he's got many other citations and has written some books and um, published quite a few papers. So, Look, we'll we'll uh, work into his life. Uh, Doug, uh, how did it all begin? 1949, born. Fill us in. Born in 49, yes. Um, that makes me quite old now, Don. Um, born into a, a family of dairy farmers in South Waikato. Uh, I was the youngest of six brothers. Well, like, there are 10 in the family, and I was the youngest, but I had six, five brothers. So there's no room for me on the farm. Uh, so I had to use my nous, and hence I headed off to university. Right. And so uh, sibling rivalry, did you um, did you play rugby, cricket? What did you do? Did you uh, sort of... The, the, um, the sport that attracted me most, of course, was cricket. I love cricket. Um, I, I, I regret that my interest in cricket, my ability in cricket, did not match my enthusiasm or the other way around, I think it is. Uh, but wonderful game, cricket, the game that's most like life. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember test cricket and I used to think, uh, gee, anyone that can sit and watch that for five days has got to have a life somewhere um, better, surely. But um, the older I've got, the more I, I realise it is a game of high skill and high, um, mm -hmm. high cunning, you might say. Yeah, you know, sure. a lot of mouse. So that's perhaps uh, why you're a scientist. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. So, so look, um, you've done quite a bit of radio and uh, with Jamie Mackay on the country, and as mm -hmm. I did too, you've you've stood the test of time a bit better than me. Um, but you know, it's hard to get your story out, isn't it? It's really hard when you get given a five minute bite on a uh, on a show to do to do uh, justice to your subject. And so tonight uh, on the show. Uh, that will be replayed during the day, actually. So I've mm. called it tonight. Um, uh, we want to give you room to be sort of uncensored and let let you get more time to get your story fully explained. Because I think while you write about it, it's really good to hear it uh, from from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So where would you like to start? Um, well, I'll, I'll, no I'll, pick up, I'll pick up on that thought that. Um... One of the things that's um, driven me, I suppose, and, and the things I've done uh, is that farmers are being bombarded with all sorts of inf infomercials, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Most of it um, uh, pseudoscience. And uh, that that appalls me because uh, we're, we're a nation of farmers. Farming is our biggest activity in town. Uh, and yet the, the we can't get the stories that we need to in front of farmers that they need uh, to uh, make good decisions on the farm. You have a, um, a quote under your address on your emails from Carl Sagan. Would you like to repeat that? <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the quotation is, um, the only anecdote to pseudoscience is science itself. Um, and as I just said, there's so much... Uh, and remember, I specialise in the area of soil, soil fertility, fertilisers. There's just so much, um, I'll be on PC about this, so much bullshit in the marketplace. And 
the, the crime of it is that fertilizer is the biggest item of expenditure on most, most farms. And so how that fertilizer dollar is spent has a big impact on the overall farming operation. And yet uh, in, in this day and age, we it's a free-for-all out there. There's no Fertilizer Act. There's no definition, legal definition of fertilizer. Um, and so anything goes out there in, in, in farmland in terms of fertilizers. And uh, that's, that's something that, um, um, well, needs to be addressed. So, so I know we have a Fertiliser Quality Council. Are you not enamoured with, with the output from that organisation? The um, Fertiliser Quality Council is very, very weak. Um, it, it, it records the content, it makes sure that the, the content of what's in fertiliser is accurately recorded. But it doesn't deal anywhere with the efficacy of these things. So in theory, you can... You can um, uh, register on Fertmark, uh, uh, say a liquid seaweed, true to label, um, but the fact that, that it's useless and ineffective as a fertilizer has not registered with Fertmark. So I'm I'm critical of that. Um, going going back at, before that, we used to have a thing called the Fertilizer Act uh, that was um, gotten rid of uh, years ago before the Fertmark scheme. Um, and now there's no legal definition of what a fertilizer is. And so anyone can sell anything and call it a fertilizer. And we have examples of that, of people effectively selling basalt rock to farmers saying the best fertilizer in the world, blah, blah, blah. That sort of thing grates at my scientific integrity. It really does. I was uh, reading about the incident that you mentioned in, I think, one of these uh, newspaper articles about the long-running saga about maxi crop, <laughs> and you know the fact that you've been dealing with what uh, the judge referred to as was it snake oil dealers? Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah, would you care to expand upon that? Yeah, sure. The, the background to that was that um, Don would know this very well. Uh, in the early '80s, the subsidies were removed from fertilizer, um, and they were large subsidies, and and. Uh, served the country well. Uh, but the, the subsidies were removed and into that market came a number of companies selling their products, inverted commas, um, claiming that they were as good as the traditional uh, fertilizers like super, um, but only at half the cost. And one of these was a product called MaxiCrop, which was a liquid seaweed product. Um, they came into the market saying they were the answer to the farmer's needs. Um, some of us in, in, in agricultural science at the time took exception to that. They advertised it on, on national radio, uh, national TV. And um, that resulted in a fair go program in which I was invited to speak. And I recorded to the, to the public that uh, we've tested this product and it doesn't work. The consequence of that is that MAF, Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries was uh, sued for defamation, def defaming the product. I think the, the number was 11 or $11 million we were sued for defamation. And so I went to court and the court case ran for a whole year. Um, a lot, lots of witnesses um, from all over the world came and gave evidence. And in the end, the judge agreed with us uh, that the product uh, could not work based on what it contained and did not work 
based on the field trial evidence that we had. So it was a, 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 a complete, uh, well, um, how, how do I say this? Uh, it was a magnificent victory for science, I thought, um, in terms of establishing once and for all that truth is total defense and defamation. In other words, uh, if what you say is true, you cannot be defaming. Like, uh, in other words, you can't defame someone who's selling something which um, a product which doesn't work. So I, 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 this was a high point in my career, very informative in terms of my development as a scientist, because it taught me the, le the lessons of the law. And I've used that a lot in, in my subsequent writings, um, uh, criticizing products and people complaining to me about they're going to sue me. And I'll say, well, that's fine. Truth is total defense. I'll see you in court. And they run away, of course. Um, and that, so that's been a, a great, um, uh, a great, uh, uh, what, 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 how should I put this? A great stop, uh, um, stop bank uh, in terms of um, uh, what I could and could not say. This, the tragedy of it all was that that many people in Wellington at the time and in MAF and uh, other organisations thought that, that this was a terrible thing that we did, uh, taking this company to court. But the point is they took us to court. We had uh, only left with the, the obligation to defend ourselves as best we could. And I'm delighted to say that science came through and then we won the, won the day. Well, isn't it interesting that um, after that, that still the definition of fertilizer wasn't uh, established anywhere in, in, in the statutes. Uh, you would have thought that would have been vital to have after that event. Um, strange, you find it strange that it still doesn't have a definition the way it needs to have one? Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, uh, as I said, people in Wellington, the bureaucrats, were very nervous about the Max Crop case and they misinterpreted what it meant. They they interpreted it as meaning that, that don't say anything outrageous, it might get you into trouble, stay clear of the courts, blah, blah, blah. When in actual fact, from my perspective, it was quite the opposite to that. It meant that we had uh, uh, in, in, in cemented in, in the law that uh, uh, def the defense for defamation is, is the truth. And so providing we stuck to the truth about products, we were on, on sound, sound grounds. But the, as I said, the bureaucrats took it all negatively. Um, they wanted the Fertilizer Act to go because of all this problem, these problems. Um, and hence, the, that was the beginning of what, what became the, um, the Federated Farmers Fertmark Scheme. Um, and I argued at the time that it was going to be useless, that scheme, if it doesn't, didn't deal with the issue of uh, the effectiveness of products. But of course, it, it didn't. And so that's a shame all around, really. The way I see it, that case is actually science being useful to farmers because what uses science if it's just isolated away and it's not of practical use? But I wonder, you know, I see you talking about the bureaucrats in Wellington not being happy, despite you actually sticking your neck out and providing a service for, you know, for the farming community for whom agricultural science and the research centers are supposedly set up for. Mm. But did was that experience, was that in some way a catalyst of you setting out on your own? Because you see, or at least I see, career scientists who will not leave their jobs, who will retire mm. from those positions, mm. yet you chose to stick, you know, to go out on your own. 
Hmm, interesting. That takes me right back to the reason I became a scientist, a soil scientist, and an agricultural scientist in the first place. Um, McMeekin, the the founder of uh, the forebear of Ruruka um, Research Station, was used to quote and say that science, agricultural science, is of no use unless it's supplied on the farm. Now, for some reason um, of birth, I don't know why, I got a double dose of that gene. Um, and I became very adamant that that, our, that what science we did must be shared with the farmer. What, what other purpose did I go into agricultural science for? And there's a lot of us in that era, uh, to, but to help agriculture and help farmers. And so that's, that's, that was just a given in, in my day. But of course, things changed when they decided to politicise and commercialise science. Uh, and then now the purpose of science wasn't to inform farmers, uh, but but to make money for science, which I couldn't live with. And so that period um, that we're talking about now, around 86 to 92, mm -hmm. um, longest civil case in New Zealand's history at that time, I'm not sure whether it's been superseded, but um, what did it take a toll on your on your um, personal sort of demeanor and and life because uh, it's it's a big deal it's a pretty big deal to take on something that big it was very very informative um and instructive to me uh, and really i guess formed the foundation for um what became my second career i i, I could no longer tolerate um the way science was going that that i, I was told that my job was not to inform farmers uh, but to make money for the company this this was the beginning of the commercialization i couldn't live with that and so i set out on saying well um I, I, the old public service model of of uh, scientists was using our brains to help farming and, and new zealand and so i thought well I, I could possibly do that in a commercial setting hence setting up acknowledge And so um, the time out, when you reflected on your time out around mm -hmm. 90, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps, perhaps mm -hmm. 1998, mm -hmm. um, what did you do? You know, your soul searching, was that part of it? Just, just oh, very, very, recalibrating very, your body and your, your, your very, mind? Very much so, Dawn. Um, uh, I, when, when, when the CRO reforms happened in 1991, I think, 92, I became the National Science Leader Soils and Fertiliser Group. Um, and I initially embraced the reforms because they talked about um, science and, and commerce joining together and, and working together for the betterment of one would thought everyone. Uh, so initially I embraced uh, the reforms, but over time I became very, very, very cynical about the whole thing um, because the the um, the purpose of science was was being undermined uh, by the need to make money for the company, uh, and that destroyed the, in my view, destroyed the integrity of science. It still does. Uh, it's even worse now than it has been. Uh, it still does undermine the integrity of science, and and no one benefits from that. Certainly not the farmers. Uh, and agricultural research is in a terrible state at the moment. And I look at your website, uh, Dr. Edmeads, that's dougedmeads.com, and under publications, you have been very forthright on this issue, your 
paper there, I downloaded the PDF that states, is the commercial model appropriate for science? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you don't mince your words when you say that this commercialization commenced mm -hmm. in 1990 with the formation of Crown Research Institutes required to undertake public good research and pay dividends and profits and running completely on a commercial model. And John and I have often talked about we had a really small country, aren't we? Five million, mm. a tiny island at the bottom of the Pacific. And the amount of uh, money that's going, the amount of research institutes mm. we have, it just boggles the mind. Mm, mm, mm. Well, going back to Dawn's point and finishing that off, um, so I, I became very concerned about what was happening to science and uh, it affected my mental health. Uh, and I got out and had a year out of um, just thinking about things. One of the first questions I asked myself is, am I going mad or is the rest of the world going mad? Is the commercial model the appropriate model for science? And it didn't take me long and through reading and doing my diploma to realise that of all the models of organisation, it was the worst model for science because it's the one model that compromised the purpose and integrity of science. So once I got to that, to that point, I had um, my madness disappeared a little bit. Uh, not, uh, and and I, I gained a better equilibrium. And that's when I decided, well, hell, I'm going to do something about this. Um, and the heads are starting to write um, material for farmers to benefit from. Yeah, and I remember that period, Doug, and I remember when you sort of started uh, your more um, vocal um, um, media work. And uh, I sort of remember also in the, in the 90s when I started in Federated Farmers, some older farmers telling me that, oh, this blue sky science is just rubbish. We've got to have it commercialised. We can't have this um, <laughs> pot of gold uh, that everyone's just the honey pot and we don't know where it's going to go so what's the point we've got to have a commercial thing and that was the big push for me uh, or to me from older farmers at the time mm. so it's it's like uh you were railing against that and and in my view rightly so because of what we see today as you point out is it's even worse uh <laughs> by, by orders of magnitude um mm. uh for the likes of climate science anyway um yeah, so so how did you, how, how did you break into uh yeah, you must have been under a bit of pressure. How did you break into this and sort of regain your sort of mojo for for talking about this stuff? Um well, yeah, I had a year out and started thinking about things and um uh found myself uh at odds with much of what was happening in society and agricultural research. Uh, and so I decided to, well, put my own foot forward and, and, and do something about it if I could. So that, that's when I started up Acknowledge and writing the Fertiliser Review. Um, but going back to your point, Don, um, yeah, the, the, the point about the paper about is the commercial model appropriate? Yeah, that was a big um, one thing I learned that year doing that diploma, reading about the different models by which society is organised, whether it's not-for-profit or public service or commercial, and reading about that and looking at the values and that under underpinned those different types of um, commercial, uh, different types of structure. Uh, so that gave me the, the confidence to say, well, um, there used to be a very, very good public service model um, 
of farm advisors uh, who did wonderful work over many, many years informing farmers and, and informing agriculture about science. And I thought, well, and that, though, that whole movement was based on the values of uh, integrity, honesty, good sound science, et cetera. And so I thought, well, maybe I can develop a company which represents those same values, but it has to make a, a dollar to, um, to work. Uh, disappointed me that farmers felt that they had to be commercialised. Um, I think, I hope now they've learned their lesson that that was the worst thing that happened to agriculture. Uh, and we see the worst of, of what's happened now and, and I hear farmers uh, and, and um, hear, hear farmers telling me about this, the plight of science. And, and the best example of, uh, I've written about the commercialization and politicization of science many, many times. And, the, and we have a, right now, doorstep right now, a beautiful example of the, the consequences of doing that. And that is of course, regenerative agriculture. It's absolute pseudoscience, it's bullshit. Uh, and yet this government um, have decided that they uh, are right and they will invest at the moment, I think they're investing about $79 million in regenerative agriculture. Uh, for heaven's sake, uh, what's that about? And but that's a great example of, of the dangers of commercialising and politicising science. When the RA thing struck, uh, there was a group of us who got together and said, this is nonsense, and we informed the, the then Minister of Prime Ministries, um, what's his name? I forget the name. Uh, very forgetful name, I think. Damien um, O'Connor? Yeah, that's the one. That's what um, informed him that this is nonsense. Uh, but no, no, he was adamant that he was right and that regen agriculture was going to be the best thing for, uh, for sliced bread for the New Zealand farmer. Well, it's an absolute joke. There's now evidence coming to light showing that it's just a nonsense. Um, and so we're on a, a $76 million ride to hell on, on this whole regenerative agriculture nonsense. So Dr. Edmeets, what has this 73 million funded in terms of region? Because I know quite a few trials that are happening. I know this advisors who are virtually mm. like, you know, salesmen touting their wares. What has the 73 million exactly gone into? Well, there, there are a number of projects uh, that, that I'm aware of. One, uh, uh, a major one in, in the Hawke's Bay is looking at the, the potential effects of regenerative agriculture on improving soil quality and reducing um, climate emissions. Um, others have looked at um, the economic viability of, of regenerative farming as opposed to conventional farming. And they don't, the evidence coming from that doesn't look good at all. But we also have evidence coming from farmers themselves, the, the Southland couple who um, initially embraced regenerative farming is being wonderful. Uh, only to have their farm sort of um, turn and uh, become very, very sick because of the lack of nutrients. And this is crazy. You know, one of the one of the tenets of, of regenerative farming is that you can reduce or minimize or get rid of fertilizer inputs. Well, that's just an absolute nonsense. If you're farming, you're taking nutrients off the farm. If you're not replacing the nutrients, you're going backwards. There's no compromising about that. You said before about my being pretty uncompromising. It, it has to be spelt out in ways that people can understand. If they're not putting fertilizer on, replacing the nutrients they're taking off, they're going backwards, full stop. So, so Doug, is it fair to say that in some areas of New Zealand where regen ag is being touted as useful, 
there's perhaps a surfeit of sorry a surplus of um, fertilizer or phosphates or nutrients in the soil already and all these guys are doing is mining it until there's nothing left and then there will be a depleted soil is that how you see it yeah ab absolutely absolutely and um uh, it's, it's the same problem uh, um, affects organic farming you know you, you get these people saying we've been organic farming for 10 years and it's all good we don't put fertilizer on blah 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 but uh, but all they're doing is mining down the nutrient reserves they built up over time. But, you know, you can't defy chemistry in that manner. It's just crazy. So, so a basic question uh, here is: um, How or when is the world likely to run out of these nutrients that we need to add from a specific spot? Say, that's getting phosphate out of um, a mine somewhere in the Pacific or in North Africa. Uh, bring it to New Zealand, uh, changing it into superphosphate, for instance, or even leaving it as a reactive mm. rock, mm. and mm. then transporting our food around the world. Mm. Um, there seems to be this fear of the future with a lot of people that everything's going to run out tomorrow and we should stop it and make us all miserable. What's, oh, yeah. uh, mm. how, how's that work for you? <laughs> not very well at all. I'm, I'm not a pessimist about these matters, uh, peak soil, peak oil, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, for example, looking at phosphate reserves, the last time I did some sums on that subject, there was something like um, uh, 20 generations of phosphate reserve, known phosphate reserves in the world. That's known reserves. There, there are reserves which we don't know about, and the reserves which we do know about, which are, aren't being used at all. So um, uh, I, I don't think we're going to run out of, of those important reserves at all. Um, sure, that's, it's, it's uh, important that we make make sure we use nutrients effectively and efficiently. That's no, there's no question about that. But that's quite another matter. We're not going to the world's not going to fall over tomorrow if we stop stop putting fertilizer on. So, so, so an adjunct to that question is if there was um, uh, GE, GMO type um, grasses or fodders or things that mm -hmm. can produce a lot more. Uh, output with mm -hmm. the same or less fertilizer is mm -hmm. that at all possible? Because theoretically, to grow stuff, you need inputs. Uh, uh, mm, can you mm. modify that? Mm. Well, well, of course it is. You know, we, we it's very hard to predict the future, but from this moment, we can say that one of the reasons why we use so much fertilizer in this country is because the most important part of the, of the pasture is the clover, because uh, clover fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere and that's free. Um, but clover has a very, very weak root structure. And the reason why I have to put on so much fertilizer is, because to, uh, is to um, modify its, its poor root structure. But think about this work, um, gene technology. Why don't we develop a, a clover plant which has a, a good root structure like ryegrass or a good root structure like brown top, which can survive in low fertility areas and still produce? You know. Um, we've we've stopped thinking positively about the future, and one of the reasons for that is because science is just agricultural science in particular is being cut off at the knees. It's, it's no, no big thinkers out there. Yeah, and no, I look. Thanks for that. It's a great. It's a positive way to to think about stuff. And I, mm. the mm. book that I read, and I don't read many books, but Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist made uh -huh. me. Mm -hmm. really think about um, why anyone would ever want to be negative about the future of the world. I mean, mm -hmm. it just it just 
doesn't add up if you're a negative you know, if you're trying to stop the good things happening mm -hmm. um, what are you really trying to stop you, or stop everything you're trying to stop good things happening mm -hmm. and evolving so I don't get it but we do have these people that fear the future and they seem to have the uh, ear of um, at least mainstream media but they haven't got the ear of reality check radio so uh, <laughs> I'm glad on the moral high ground I'm glad about that. There's another book uh, subsequent to Ridley's book, which I, I agree was a wonderful book. Uh, this one is by Steven Pinker, and it's called Enlightenment Now. Um, and it, it more or less is the same message. You know, if we look back at, um, um, uh, at the records, from, from, say, crop production around the world, and, and uh, when we look back, it's all... Um, and see what's happening. We, we're always improving, improving, improving. I'll give you an example from a soil science point of view. The longest running uh, trial in, in, in soil fertility started in 1850 in Rothenstedt in, in Britain. Uh, and in those first couple of years, they grew about a ton of wheat per hectare. Now, on those same plots, uh, they're now growing about 10 to 12 tons. Now, all that's because of science and technology and better weed control, better fertilizer use, blah, 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 blah. So why is it that when, when, when we look back, we see this huge progress that human, humanity has, has, has made and called the Enlightenment, of course. Um, why is it that, that, that today we're full of doom and gloom and we're going to ruin the planet, blah, 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 blah. I don't agree with it at all. Um, I'll just embellish that a little bit more. Um, one of the reasons for, for this uh, uh, demise in, in, in human spirit is, in my view, to do with uh, postmodernist thinking. Um, go back to the uh, early days, um, uh, Middle Ages, when, when, when the truth was, was uh, divulged by, uh, by uh, religion. So if you had a crop failure, uh, you were told to go and pray harder or pay, pay more money to the bishops or whatever have you. That was the Middle Ages. That gave way to what we call the Enlightenment, where, where the, the truth was uh, decided by facts and empirical evidence. And so if your crop was failing, you'd find the reason, the cause for the crop failure. That's given way to what's called post postmodernism thinking which where the truth is what what you believe individually is the truth nothing to do with the evidence uh, and and so uh, we, we're in this philosophical time when our, our modern western world is is so insecure about itself that it's looking for all the reasons why it's going to fail again it had, never has failed it's always been wonderful. That's why I get very angry when I hear people deriding and undermining the value and importance of science. Science is important. It is valuable. And look what it's done for us in, in, um, over the years. For example, Don, if you were living in the Middle Ages, a good life would have been about 30 years. Um, come up to the um, so 1800s, you're living about 40 years. Uh, and now, of course, the longevity is about 80, 90 years, all because of science and technology. So why have we lost confidence in this most wonderful, wonderful thing that, that humanity has developed? Why have we done that? I don't know.
I'd like we to have, know. I have uh, recently listened to a talk by our, uh, one of our leading freshwater ecologists, scientist, Dr. Mike Joy, the other day. And this was a <laughs> oh, webinar. <laughs> this was a webinar. So I, I think he's quite at odds with you, with the view you have about the optimism. So this mm -hmm. webinar he gave was a part of a degrowth. Literally, this is what the subject was, degrowth out mm -hmm. here, Roa. And uh, halfway through this webinar, he had a graph and he had plotted two trajectories of the growth of human population. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to say that, you know, I was at 1940s or 60s, sometime around that time, he speaks about, and this is when nitrogen came in, synthetic <laughs> nitrogen fertilizer. He, and he goes on to say that had it not happened, the earth would have had 3.5 billion people. And look mm -hmm. at it, where we are today, mm -hmm. 7 billion and counting. And I was wondering, you know, what does he want to do with the rest? You know, the 3.5 billion that he was, uh, he seemed to be very sad about their existence today. Mm. Perhaps he should take a leaf out of what happened in Sri Lanka last year. <laughs> they stopped commercial fertilizer. I saw food riots. I saw the mm. president having to be escorted off by the army for his safety mm. and the Sri Lankan people uh, taking over the presidential palace, jumping in the pool. Mm. What do they think is going to happen? It's almost like they would like to pretend that the consequences of what these scientists are peddling are, you know, let's just ignore it just happens in Asia. It won't happen here. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's lots of um, levels of, of discussion around that point. Um, but yes, reinforcing your point, Sri Lanka by decree decided to be organic and uh, went, went bankrupt, essentially. Um, uh, where else can we go with that? Um, about 40, no, about it's about 45% of the world's population now depends on nitrogen fertilizer for its, for its um, livelihood in terms of food. Uh, so what do you want to do? Close, close down all the nitrogen plants um, and let half the world starve? Do you want to do that? I don't want to do that. Um, but why not why don't we take a leaf out of the out of the Enlightenment era and say, look. Human, you know, I'm not saying the world's perfect, but humankind has made such progress with science, um, such progress. And why have we suddenly lost confidence in that? And Mike Jaw is one of those people who is negative about most things. He would want us, like the organic farming people, to go back and farm the way that grandpa did. Well, I know the way my grandpa farmed, and I wouldn't want to live that life at all. Um, we are very fortunate to have science and technology on the side of farming these days, where it's so much easier, we live longer, we have better lives, we have healthier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just don't buy into Mike Joy's negativity about life. But that's that's the pervasive malaise which hangs across our society at the moment. You know, um, farming's dead. Um, we all got to sort of tie the, the twine around the the farm gate and go home and uh, grow vegetables and uh, eke out a living. Uh, it's To me, it's just nonsense. People like that should go and read Stephen Pinker's book, The Enlightenment Now. Uh, if you look back at um, records, there's a very good website uh, called um, The World in Data. And you can look up there, uh, crops, uh, look at crop data going back over time. Uh, and choose a country, choose a crop, and whatever, whatever Whatever you choose, it always shows an increase and in improvement in crop yields over time. Isn't that bloody marvellous? Why can't we expect that to continue? Uh, the world will 
population will control itself eventually. Um, we know we know that. Um, so we're not, you know, it's not doom and gloom in my view. But they are creating these warriors, aren't they? More like Mike Joy. Budget 22 has uh, just uh, spoken about $9 million that's going to be used to fund 27 students, uh, about equally split between masters and PhDs to research greenhouse emission. And mm -hmm. that's all being propped up by taxpayer ratepayer money. Mm -hmm. And there we go, creating more of the mm -hmm. same, more people who are pushing along on that agenda. Mm -hmm. But you know, I drove back from town this evening and there is this uh, sort of movement that has begun last year, I believe from the Waikato. This group, they call themselves Your Food Producers, if you look them up. And they are telling farmers, the ones who think that, you know, farming is struggling to put up green crosses on their gates. So I counted seven today and mm -hmm. I live in the sticks. Those are seven farmers who have put up those green crosses mm -hmm. uh, around their properties mm. just showing mm. that there is there is massive mm. stress mm. and on the flip side i was uh, in a in a workshop and uh, i was sort of you know berated about saying that we can't uh, have a councillor which is what i am on the southland district council mm. presenting a climate denialist view to our ratepayers that would be a huge <laughs> disservice so mm. Mm. there is literally no debate mm. Mm. I, uh, well, we're touching on a, 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 a river of gold at this point. But just <laughs> Let's go there. Just, a point, uh, just to finish off that point, um, I tell farmers, farming groups th these days that, that the yeah, farming's under threat. The biggest threat for farming is in extreme environmentalism as represented by people like Mike Joy uh, because they undermine the confidence that farmers need to do what this country needs them to do to produce. Um, and sure, I'm not saying produce at the expense of the environment. Farmers are doing wonderful work in terms of environmental management, et cetera, et cetera. And we just need to continue that and we will solve this problem. You know, we, we look back and see nothing but but good, but, but look forward and see nothing but gloom. Why is that? That's one point. Second point you're leading on to, of course, is, uh, is the, the fourth estate and how pathetic and hopeless they are at the moment. And that takes us right into this area of um, global warming. Um, and uh, yeah, I take a deep breath at that point. Um, the whole the, the whole global warming thing is, is, is not science, it's politics. And we can easily test that. Karl Popper, one of the great uh, uh, philosophers of last last century um, came up with a, a test for science: what is science and what is not. And the the test he used or explained was uh, falsifiability. If you can't falsify something, it's not science. Religion can't be falsified, for example. So too with climate change, you can't falsify. There's no argument you can present to the alarmists which will falsify their view. If it rains too much, it's climate change. If it's too dry, it's climate change. There's, there's endless answers they have for, the, for this thing. So that we know that it's not science at all. Um, it, it is politics, pure and simple. But this country's gone mad on this whole thing. It really has. Um, and uh, I, I became involved in the climate change thing um, mainly because... Uh, Because farmers would, um, on, you 
sitting on the back of the bike going around the farm and they would ask me about what did I think about climate change and I would say look not my um it's not my speciality I don't know but I became very unsatisfied with that answer and so I started doing some reading myself uh, about um about this climate change thing and it, it boils down to some simple simple things like the climate has always changed for better or worse on, on, on Earth, long before mankind found coal or oil or anything else. Uh, it's been warmer and colder than it has been now. Um, so what's what's this latest trend about? Um, that's one argument. The other Another argument would be, um, we know from the ice cores that um, uh, they look at the, the, the emissions of CO2 and temperature from the ice cores, and they they can find they show that that the the um, CO two the the carbon dioxide concentration increases after the temperatures increase, not the other way around. CO two does not drive the temperature. So there's lots of little examples like that. I don't have to go into the deep science of it all, which tell me and tell me that this is not science. This is politics, and unfortunately, this country has embraced this whole thing hook, line, and sinker. Well. Did it strike you as uh, a fair bit of hyperbole when the prime, former Prime Minister in a valedictory speech yesterday said she would like to see the politics taken out of climate change? I, I, I couldn't believe that statement, knowing full well that she has been at the forefront of politicising climate change for eons. I, um, I, don't, I don't think she knew what she was saying, frankly. Well, maybe not the euphoria of leaving uh, Parliament might have been too much. Of course, <laughs> we we could easily define fertiliser and, and put it in the parlance of 120 MPs in, in Wellington, mm -hmm. but that would be a bit mean, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. It would um, be. So, so, you know, you have a chief science advisor mm -hmm. uh, in the and advising the Prime Minister and heads of departments. Surely they must be unbiased. Surely. Mm -hmm. I am... Um... Once I'd done quite a bit of reading about the, the climate change thing, I wrote for my own um, uh, purposes. I wrote a paper called "The Ten Reasons Why I'm a Climate Skeptic." Now, I use the word "skeptic" in its rightful way—person who is not convinced on the evidence of a particular hypothesis. So, a skeptic isn't someone with long horns and, and green eyes. A skeptic is a normal person, like a scientist. Uh, anyway, so I wrote this paper: Ten Reasons Why I'm a Skeptic. And I sent it to both sides, people on both sides of the story, and asked them, please point out any um, um, statements of, uh, of bad logic. Uh, no one no one could, no one has. And that was written about 12 years ago. Um, uh, so I, based on that, I became more confident to speak out about this whole climate change thing. It has done me a disservice, of course, because... I'm now regarded among my scientific uh, colleagues as a freak. Um, uh, it's done my reputation in that regard very, very badly. But what else could I do? Um, uh, th these well, things have to be spoken of. Well, you know, I attended a seminar in Bacargill about six months ago where a, a senior scientist sort of rubbished uh, another scientist and his mates from... Uh, from Princeton University, and I thought, you know, mm. no, the word word I can't—they're just not coming back to mind. But they were not pleasant. Uh, mm. They're de deriding the character of the other person's mm. ability. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, uh, an eminent uh, physicist uh, 
So when you get that sort of nonsense happening, you do have to wonder who's funding who and why they would be so vociferous against uh, against a, a hypothesis. And so linking back to that, what I've read about, for instance, methane and uh, biogenic methane, in fact, methane from any source, is that the physicists that I'm talking about are saying that it cannot uh, be uh, causing any significance, a warming of any significance anywhere in the planet. And it doesn't matter whether it's from a pipeline or the ruminant animal, doesn't matter. Methane and nitrous oxide are so irrelevant. And yet in New Zealand, there seems to be this belief that we can't let that narrative get any traction mm -hmm. because we'd have, we'd, have, um, we'd have to eat some humble pie. Mm -hmm. I think the sooner we eat some humble pie, the sooner we can get on. Absolutely, it's it's just um, crazy. I've I've read that, that same work you're talking referring to, Don, um, and it's pretty convincing stuff uh, that that methane and nitrous oxide uh, cannot uh, affect the climate on Earth um, because of the absorption spectra and blah blah blah. I won't go into the detail, um, but but there's complete denial among uh, scientists in 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 the the the, the, the um, alarmists in New Zealand, and then I, I once again I go back to my theme of saying that the dangers of politicising and commercialising science. This climate change thing is another example. Uh, the early example I used was um, regenerative agriculture. This climate science thing is another example where. Uh, science has been politicised, and so the poor si the scientists are, are dependent on on money from the government, uh, and therefore they will not speak out against, um, uh, even if they know um, uh, that that the, that the science isn't right. They can't speak against it because they'll lose their jobs or or lose their funding. Um, that's that's the trap that New Zealand has fallen into, and it's going to. When I, when I was writing the, pa the papers about um, uh, pseudoscience, a threat to agriculture, I became aware of the possibility that one day there will be there will come about a a fraud in 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 the world in New Zealand, um, it, it showing exactly what I'm saying about the dangers of commercialising, politicising science. And so we now have two examples of where that's actually happened: regenerative agriculture, and the bigger than that, the, the climate. Uh, whole climate change uh, debate. Well, it's not a debate because the press won't let us speak about it. Um, just on, on that, um, I've got a quote here. Uh, this is from the New Zealand Herald some, some time ago about climate change. The media should not give climate deniers a platform. To allow climate denial is totally irresponsible for the general public and particularly for our children and grandchildren. That's the press uh, not doing what uh, the fourth estate is supposed to do, inform the public. That's the press deciding that they are the 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 source and foundation of the truth in the world. That's a very very dangerous position for democracy. Democracy is supposed to be if it works best for people. It's open um, and uh, argument is free free to happen. And you know that is why, because like you spoke about the Herald, mainstream media hasn't given people like you and others. I am not saying any one position is right or wrong. I have my views on that, but the ability to debate, to voice opinions, is the mm. very least that can be expected. Mm. And yet, that is the very same that I faced, you know, in my role here as an elected official. Now, a workshop mm. begins 
with uh, slides saying that we've seen the power of Cyclone Gabriel and what climate change has done and anthropogenic, and then it goes on with NEVA data. And I, you know, raised my hand and I said, well, you know, how many of us have looked at uh, over the revelation, uh, revelations of last six weeks about mm. NEVA data and it being skewed and it missing, I believe, 82%, 21 of the 24 biggest mm. storms from 1840 onwards. No, no, mm. no, that was not taken. Then it went on. The presentation went on to SSP. So we moved on from RCPs, SSP 8.5 and how wet and how dry Southern mm. is going to be. So yet again, I had an issue about, you know, why are we using model 8.5 and so on. <laughs> and finally, when no one was willing to debate, I was told, you know, it is not a good position for an elected official on the yeah, council right, to take right. a position mm. that ratepayers could mm. interpret as being a climate denier. We, they said it would be an absolute disservice. Mm. And this is what we've come to. I know. No debate. It's mm. like label someone, put them in a box, and there's that sorted. That's right. Um, no, I don't know the solution uh, to to these problems. You know, farming is under threat from extreme environmentalism. Um, science is under threat because of this commercialization and politicization of science. Uh, uh, and I thought, good and hard, how, how are we going to solve those problems? Um, change of government will be a good start. Well, it'll be a start, but it's not, it needs to go a lot further than that. Um, we've got ourselves in a deep, deep poo. Yeah, so you say changing the government's um, a start, but not complete start. I agree. Uh, you know, we've got to have a change of psyche right through the bureaucracy. And of course, as we've talked about, no one wants to um, vote for an early departure from a from a career or a job. So uh, turning Wellington on its head, uh, like it had <laughs> happened to it in probably 85 to 99, because when I first went to Wellington in 98, um, Lambton Quay was empty. Uh, mm. When I left in 2011, it was packed, uh, and it's probably double uh, that mm. by now mm. because of the um, job creation that's gone on through the government mm. agency. So no one's going to vote for an early Christmas. The turkeys in Wellington aren't going to do that. Mm. How are we going to clean them out? Do we need a major recession? Mm. Um, because clearly they're, they're destroying provincial um, provincial. Uh, effort. They are really putting the pressure on us, and we need to regain some sort of parity mm -hmm. uh, back for the regions. And uh, that just seems light years away currently. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you feel. I, I personally, as a scientist, you know, brought up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when science was regarded as um, not the holy grail, but certainly very, very important. And now to live through a time when science has de been degraded and undervalued as it is now um it, it jars at my heart it really does uh but how to change that i'm bugged if i know don um i really don't do not know well i'm, um, I'm aware there's a there's a new um political party being set up called heartland it was around in the last election but yeah. this time they're having another go and it's it's seeking to um take regional uh electorate seats for rural and regional new zealand yeah. and yeah. trying to get some uh, place in the parliament, like create the overhang is the, mm -hmm. is the plan, so that the parliament expands. And I would rather it diminished, but you know, if this is the way to mm -hmm. fix it, maybe uh, Heartland Party representing rural and regional New Zealand is the way to go. And one of our guests coming up, Jasper, will be um, the chairman of the Heartland New Zealand Party, or Heartlands as it's called. So 
maybe that's a, an option, Doug. But you know, I'm I'm on. Uh, don't we? I know you're a positive sort of a chap, and I'm. I think we're all positive. But when we know that this country could be so much better uh, if the makers were allowed to make and the takers would just uh, ease back a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we do know that society does uh, do a lot of redistribution in a democracy. Uh, but we think that the, well, I think that the scales have tipped uh, too far to the redistributive side as opposed to the productive side. Mm -hmm. I, agree. I agree with your philosophy there, Don. I really do. Um, just just reflecting again on, on examples of, of how science has been corrupted in New Zealand. Um, I'm a member of the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition, uh, and as such, I get uh, information from all around the world, not just New Zealand, about the latest science and, and that's happening in this area. Uh, I remember early on when I joined, um, one of the guys uh, quite legitimately got from uh, Niwa, I think, Met Office, the all the New Zealand uh, temperature data going back for 100 years. Um, and uh, when you plotted that data out, it's it's about level. There's no um, evidence of any increase in temperature. Compare that with the NIWA official site, which shows a 0.9 degree centigrade increase. Um, in other words, the data has been what they call homogenized. Now, there are legitimate reasons for doing that. And we've sought from, the, the coalition has sought from the, the the powers that be, the evidence upon which these adjustments were made. And they can't provide them. They haven't got the data. So we've got this whole ETS policy that we've got in New Zealand at the moment is actually based on the falsity. Uh, when is the public going to wake up to this? And, and then again, I come across the question of, they can, the public can only be informed about this once the real, the fourth estate gets the, the uh, returns to what it truly is uh, there to do. And there's a wonderful quote from Terry Brosnan, actually, on that subject. The purpose of journalism is to provide citizens with the information they need to make the best possible decisions about their lives, communities, societies, and governments. That isn't happening. So at the moment, what's really broken in our society is that the fourth estate has decided they know what the truth is. And that's very dangerous. That that leads to all sorts of isms, communism, Nazism, all sorts of isms. Well, and of course, um, in New Zealand, we had the um, the broadcast fund, I've forgotten the exact title of it, of uh, 55 million to start mm. with. Someone told me it's, it's got a lot more, maybe doubled. And we had the Prime Minister talk about the single source, that she was the single source of truth. Um, mm -hmm. We've got a guy that's uh, running the biggest newspaper in the country, uh, acting like he is the power broker for Auckland. Uh, mm -hmm. His attacks mm -hmm. on Wayne Brown, the potential mayor of Auckland, prior mm -hmm. to the uh, recent elections were, mm -hmm. were atrocious. I declare mm -hmm. I know Wayne from a long time ago. I haven't mm -hmm. seen him in 10 or 12 years. But I just found um, that editor of the New Zealand Herald's attack on him um, a bit over the top, well, very mm. much over the top. Mm. Um, and he was clearly in favour of the other guy. I mean, the bias from these guys is unbelievable. Absolutely. They don't trust the citizens to um, make a fair decision. Uh, so they need to influence it. And so, again, I repeat this on every show. Uh, when I started reading about nudge units um, and how they operate, then it all came into mm. my head how the lobbyists work. And uh, once you're an educated lobbyist and you've educated yourself on 
um, nudge being a part of a nudge unit or your behavioral insights, um, it all comes into plain view. You're being duped by and manipulated by this sort of concept. Uh, so we've got it in New Zealand in spades. Uh, that was a statement rather than asking you a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm glad you agree. Yes, I do. Do I do? I do. And that that the fund you were referring to, Don, is uh, called the Public Interest Journalism Fund. I find it very galling uh, to have that name. It should be I don't know something else, befooling the public fund or whatever else. Mm, and the, you know we've been focusing so far on this this green agenda on the rural and provincial New Zealand, but urban New Zealand is not immune from it. Uh, and I I dislike mandates. I've disliked the COVID mandate. I dislike this mandate of suddenly, you know, you need to go on EVs or e-bikes or whatever else it is, oh, because mm-hmm. I'm an adult. I, I can choose for myself. I can, you know, what I need it by terms of, say, medication or what, I, what I'm going to drive. I live out in the sticks. I have mm. two children. I lug their gear everywhere. And to mm. tell me suddenly that this is what is best for me, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Now, urban New Zealand, look at the amount of money uh, just around you, Doug. The Tihuya, the train from uh, Hamilton, Auckland, how much has it been losing? Mm-hmm. It And it is not a surprise. They already knew, even before this train uh, was started, it runs, you know, on very little capacity. It seems weekends are the only high point. Mm-hmm. Even COVID-adjusted figures, it was running at uh, 29% below expected volumes. Mm-hmm. If Why don't we trust adults enough that if something is reliable, convenient, cost efficient, mm-hmm. works for them, they'll do it. You don't have to mandate them. We don't live in a dictatorship, for God's sake, or at mm. least we didn't when we last checked. <laughs> so the green agenda is not limited to just uh, destroying mm. rural economies. Uh, urban is going to have its fair share of it. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, just at the moment, it seems to me, and I'm biased, of course, that, that uh, the farmers are being asked to take their fair share more than their fair share. And so that's what I'm barking about. Um, but how to get some change, I don't know. Um, I really uh, am, and sometimes I get very depressed about uh, about the situation. But the more I think about it, the more I think, well, I can, can only just carry on speaking out about this bullshit um, and hope, hopefully one day some people are going to see some scenes. So, so, Doug, we haven't even talked about the big boat. Hey, Waka Ikanoa. Um, <laughs> we're all in this together. You know, the, the Farmers Consortium who uh, came up with a package to do a world first and um, ask the government to tax themselves. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't get that and I never will to the day I'm finished. Uh, but anyway, uh, what's your take on farmer advocacy? Uh, seems like a fair bit happens behind the bike shed and then uh, comes out as a fait accompli and then they get the farmer backlash. Yeah, well, I'm not close to all that, Don, but my view is that um, it's a consequence of the um, agriculture, farming, there's no clear leadership anymore. Um, And once again, that's a consequence of this uh, politicisation and commercialisation of science. Um, Where are the fed farmers? Where where are beef and lamb? They're arguing among themselves now. Uh, Where where are fed farmers? Dairy NZ. Um, where's their leadership on this matter? Dairy NZ have got people there who are quite capable of understanding the the, the science of uh, global warming as I as I can, um, but they won't say anything about it because um, they're I, I, 
they hate it when I say this, they're, they're fully uh, subsidized uh, um, group of, of, of scientists owned, owned by Fonterra. So, you know, there's, there's no clear leadership anymore in, in agriculture. And that, that's, once again, that's a consequence of, of the, the reforms that have taken place where used to be the old Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries. Now, I'm not arguing we should go back to the public service days, but they did provide some leadership, at least at times. But nowadays, there's no one that the farmer can turn to and say, this uh, is, isn't good enough. Well, you know, in about 2008, Prime Minister Key uh, did take one of my confederated uh, farmers' aspirations, and that was to have a super ministry. Now, I know I'm getting, you know, people don't like that, but it was my idea, along with some um, senior members mm -hmm. of Feds, to have the ministry for primary industry. Now, the word for was key. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have a ministry that was absolutely mm -hmm. speaking mm -hmm. for the primary industries. And mm -hmm. in the old days, it would have been of. Well, yeah. what does of mm -hmm. mean? Of can mean the bureaucrats run everything. Well, I don't think we've got a ministry for primary industry. We've still got one of primary industry. Yes, the four mm. has never been mm. picked up as the mm. key reason that I asked for that super ministry. Mm. To the credit of the prime minister at the time, he he did take that idea up. I mean, I don't think the um, ministries in Wellington like that super ministry concept. They mm. prefer mm. to run in their little silos. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I see it... Uh, quite clearly uh, when all this really, the rot really set in. And it was around the uh, 2008 period, actually, where uh, a minister, uh, Smith, brought back from uh, a trip to the Scandinavian countries, this new way collaboration or collaborative model. So we all talk, we all get uh, into nice little meetings, have a talk about stuff. Mm. doesn't matter whether it's fact-based, but we all come out with an idea that says XYZ is going to happen. And mostly it's about turning down the dial on animal and agriculture production. Mm -hmm. That's how it seems to be. So mm -hmm. the word collaboration, in my opinion, mm. you, know, you and I can collaborate on stuff, but when it's forced collaboration, so it's coercion, it yeah. doesn't work. And mm. that's where we are. So again, I'm making a big statement, but I think you probably observe that too. Yeah. Um, that, what you're describing is a step down the path towards communism. Um, where uh, you know the powers that be know what's good for everyone, and uh, it'll be appalling. Uh, and that's what I see from the the why I'm concerned about the extreme environmentalists because they have that sort of attitude that they must control everything. Uh, can't let people go free and make up their own minds about things. Oh hell no! Even though we've got evidence in New Zealand now where farmers are doing a damn good job in terms of environmental management. Um, they were set free and they went off and did it. They didn't have to be told to do it. They got on with it. Um, so that's the sort of uh, world that I'd like to live in. Yeah, one where property rights are upheld and um, property yes. rights are respected. You get good environmental um, protections yes. that way generally. Of course you um, do. I'm very concerned about uh, limit setting on the waterways, uh, you know, catchment management, mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. If it's involuntary, um, it, it's not right. I know there's a lot of good stuff happens in catchment groups, and but then uh, it also appears to be about how you can source money out of mm -hmm. the ratepayer or taxpayer to do a particular mm -hmm. job. I mean, farmers, we cut ourselves free from a regulator in 1985, we thought. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps we did it too good because 
um, in New Zealand society gets the vista that a farm creates all for nothing. Mm -hmm. In the UK or in the EU, um, the farmers there get the vista created, uh, assisted by taxpayers' mm -hmm. money or you know mm -hmm. or the like. So they get payments. Mm -hmm. um, who's right? I I like the New Zealand way. I just wish the busybodies would get out of the uh, out of the fringes. Mm -hmm. And let mm. us do do our own environmental enhancement. Mm, quite so, quite so. Um, uh, takes me back to um, um, Karl Popper, uh, who wrote a book about uh, democracy, the open society. In fact, um, and he said that uh, effectively argued that society works best where things are open, um, where uh, because if they're open. Uh, the, the best ideas can be accepted, the worst ideas can be challenged down, um, but it, it only works if it's open, uh, where both sides can have the argument, and that includes the fourth estate. And and so in the last, and certainly in my lifetime, uh, we've gone uh, from quite an open society to a much more closed society where debate uh, is, is not even allowed in some areas, like we've talked about climate change and uh, ETS, et cetera, et cetera. You're not allowed to debate these matters. They're, they're beyond the pale. Mm. Yeah, completely. Nobody's talking. And the last three years have certainly sort of got this whole agenda on steroids. Well mm. over 100 years ago, Upton Sinclair, an American writer, you know, his words I often remember. I mean, we, we put it today as uh, colloquially saying, follow the money. But he mm -hmm. put it uh, far better. He said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> Salaries before yeah. science. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The gravy train rolls, train rolls mm -hmm. on, and I've seen it, be it these students who have now got $9 million. So how we need to realize there's no free lunches. If every anytime you get some bit of money, be it with a catchment group, be it something else, there is a hook attached. There is mm. something there. Mm. And uh, these partnerships, especially, I, I see them all the time mm -hmm. in my current role, but I've also seen them, you know, the same names popping up again and again, news bites and sound bites. You turn on the radio, turn on the TV, look at a rural newspaper. It's like, mm -hmm. are we all singing from the same hymn sheet? How did this, how did science ever get to this? I, I still remember, I'm, I'm 44, old enough to remember when being taught the scientific method as a child, that mm. sciences, you keep testing a hypothesis until mm. you get to a point where you know where you either accept it you, mm. or you reject the hypothesis and mm. move on. Mm. But right now it seems there is just one thing and uh, charge of the light brigade, ours is not to reason why, ours <laughs> is not to do or die, let's just hear. Quite, quite so, quite so. It's, um... It's appalling, and uh, well, that's what we've been talking about tonight, isn't it? About how how science has been captured, um, how, how agriculture has been captured. Um, um, I don't know the solution. I really don't. So, apart from apart from arguing the Karl Popper argument about the open society work, it only works if it is indeed open uh, at all levels. I think a recession will work just as well. Sometimes the pain really has to hit home before people wake up in a yep. hurry. Mm -hmm. And we are we are not far from that point. I'm mean, going to hate to be the bearer of bad news, but 
<laughs> yesterday, uh, yeah, overnight, I was looking at the email from Miles Harrell, uh, Fontero, and the GDT has dropped. Uh, yeah, global mm -hmm. dairy trade, something around some products are down close to 6%. Mm -hmm. And we began the season saying, oh, it could have a 10 behind it. We've moved to a midpoint of, oh, 9-ish. We are now at about 8.50. Mm -hmm. And the farm costs spiraling, yeah. they are not going to pull back. I've never seen costs that have risen up, be they grazing or something. Fert has come down a bit. But otherwise, once they go up, that sort mm -hmm. of becomes the market uh, benchmark, and they stay there. So, yeah, what's the fallout of all of this is... Uh, not too far, is it, Don? Well, I don't think so. Um, local authorities are, um, are talking um, about the rate of inflation yesterday, you know, in terms of their rate increases. Uh, yesterday's OCR that um, Adrian Orr seemed to blow us all the way with a 50-point uh, increase. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know why we're wanting to um, sort of be world leaders on this stuff, but... Uh, I dare say when you've um, got a current account deficit on top of all this uh, graded by the last few years, large years, mm. you know, someone's gonna, someone's got to pay the bill. And mm. I know it will be the environment that's being asked to pay the bill mm. and the first stage harvesters of that are the farmers mm. and the producers and yet they get 100% of the brain even though the large yes has been created completely mm. off farm by the biggest farm in New Zealand called mm. Parliament. Mm. That's the problem. <laughs> They're the biggest farmer in New Zealand. They farm mm. the farmers and uh, so do local authorities. Now, mm. I'm not saying that we can't have, we've got to have good governance. We've got to have um, a, a decent society has a, uh, a, a government that does provide services that mm. the public, as uh, the private sector wouldn't provide. Mm -hmm. um, but we do have massive overreach, Jasper, as you and I've talked about before, uh, with all manner of things being funded at a local and government level, um, aside from doing the core infrastructure stuff. Mm. You know, why is it always that water and roads and hospitals and policing and education is always underfunded? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If more money fixed it, why hasn't it, is my question. So, <laughs> sorry, we've, we've strayed away off... Um, um, uh, fertilizer and uh, uh, but the state of the nation is important and I know Doug Edmeads is vitally interested in this by his writings and you know we need to um, keep this in front of New Zealanders Doug we've got to keep talking about it I think we will have our day uh, at the moment perhaps considered an old dinosaur but we will have our day mm -hmm. Let's hope I'm you're happy right, to be in the dinosaurs. Yep. <laughs> Let's hope you're right. Mm. So, so, so where to now for, for Doug Edbeats? Uh, Acknowledge is going well and hopefully... Um, well, Acknowledge is nice. very, very quiet at the moment. Um, uh, this malaise that hangs over the country affects farmers and uh, affects us. Um, we'll try to keep carrying on. Um, I'm planning to retire, Don, in, in uh, next year sometime if I can. Um, but people say retire to do what? And I know what I'll do. Carry on being what I'm being. Um, there's no retirement there at all. Uh, otherwise, what do you do? Um, park away and go and play bowls for the day. Well, New Zealand would be poorer if you didn't stop, if you did stop, sorry, doing your mm -hmm. uh, output in terms of your writings, because mm -hmm. your writings are, are always well done. And mm -hmm. 
clear and we need those those opinion editorials being being done. Have you um, have you have you read Turning the Sods, Don? Not yet. You did like put my, me on the spot about that. My collection of columns, which I wrote when I was writing for the New Zealand Farmer. Mm. I don't have now have a mandate to write fortnightly columns, but I, I do have the ability to every time something springs to mind to put pen to paper and uh Rural News is still publishing those, so I'll keep, continue to do that while I while I continue to get the feedback I get, which is very positive. Right. Well, I look at the bright side of, uh, you know, acknowledge being a bit quieter. You will hopefully have a bit more time for us to do a regular slot, uh, Doug. Yeah, always about Thank you. But I, yeah. I see what you're saying about things being quiet about rural farmers. I met a rural contractor yesterday, actually, mm -hmm. last evening in town, and he was talking about how farmers have closed their checkbooks. Yep. And I was like, and he says, you know, prices are good, commodity prices. And I'm like, but so are the costs. Yes, the checkbooks indeed. are closed mm -hmm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. There's a not, not a lot falling out at the bottom once you factor in how much mm -hmm. costs have risen on farm. And it's, mm -hmm. it's reflected, I don't know how... Urban New Zealand looks at it. Some would probably think that you know farmers are minting money at this point. But I stopped <laughs> at our Foursquare coming home tonight. Yeah. I stopped at two, so mm. only mm. one of the two had eggs. So got mm. them from the one that was available, mm. and the butter was nine dollars something. Mm. Cheese was close to seventeen. The one mm. on special was twelve dollars ninety nine. Yeah, it's it's you can see exactly where it's going to hit people in the wallet, be it mm, the mm, rural green agenda mm, or mm. the urban, and that's why it is important that we keep on talking. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, let's hope we do that. I'm I'm certainly happy to contribute my bit, um, but like like uh, I think you've used the word dinosaur. We we're being treated, and once you get over seventy, you're treated as a dinosaur in this country, but. Um, I, while I still think I've got something to contribute, I'll, I will continue to speak. Yeah, it, we are uh, very grateful you are speaking. Yeah, and valued, valued by all, all of us that listen, uh, farmers and, and those of us that are uh, so urban dwellers and our listeners on Reality Check Radio that just want to know what's going on. This is all part of the education process, and we thank you for it, Doug. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening in to this chat with Dr. Doug Edmeads. This was Greenwashed with Jasprit Boparai, Don Nicholson, and our special guest tonight, Dr. Edmeads. We look forward to having him back again and to you joining us once again. Thank you. And that was Greenwashed this week with me, Jasprit Boparai, my co-host, Don Nicholson, and our special guest this week, Dr. Doug Edmeads. We hope you enjoyed it and found it stimulating. To further whet your appetite on ESGs and Vogue financing, I'll leave you with this podcast from the website newdiscourses.com. And this particular one is called the ESG Cartel. The founder of New Discourses is Dr. James Lindsay, who's got a PhD in mathematics, but his interests are quite wide ranging. He's the co-author of Cynical Theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody. And uh, the author of his new book, The Race Marxism, Dr. Lindsay says, so how do you control the bull on Wall Street? 
Simple. You put a ring through its nose, and the name of that ring is ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Scoring for Finance and Investment. It's a brief podcast, about 12 minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. Goodbye, and have a great rest of your week. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. James Lindsay, you're listening to New Discourses Bullets, where I try to break down one topic for you in a tight, succinct way so you can know what it is and make important decisions about it. Bullet point style. Today we talk about ESG. If you wondered why woke keeps happening, why all the corporations above a certain size are going woke, why all the new startups are woke, this isn't organic or not wholly organic. It's not just that the values of the people entering the managerial world are generally woke. It is, in fact, because there is a scam, a cartel, actually, that's running the entire thing from within the finance industry and within the investment industry. And that is called ESG, which is three letters, another acronym, of course. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Scoring and Policy. So what you have is a small number of actors and very large financial institutions who have created this concept of what environmental responsibility looks like, what social responsibility looks like, and what proper corporate governance responsibility looks like, allegedly because it creates long-term profitability, something that investors would be interested in, not just short-term profitability. And they manipulate the market. Rather than having a free market where companies can do what they want, they get these scores off of this, uh, these ESG scores. And then the major asset managers like Vanguard, BlackRock, Fidelity, State Street, Goldman Sachs, maybe Wells Fargo, and so on, decide if they're going to manage the assets, give investment capital, give uh, preferential uh, loans of, of other capital to these entities, depending on what their ESG score happens to be. And so I often give the metaphor when I talk about ESG is that if you want to control the bull on Wall Street, how are you going to do it? Well, it turns out little fearless girl isn't going to do it. It's that you put a ring through the bull's nose. And the name of that ring is ESG, Environmental Social Governance Scoring, which is run like a cartel, like a financial mafia by a very small number of very incestuous large finance companies. This whole concept grew originally out of it, the idea of corporate social responsibility, which was kind of floating around 15 or 20 years ago maybe even 30 years ago, where uh, the idea that we should be trying to pressure companies through various means, including you know stock and investment, to take responsible measures for including long-term sustainability, as it were, but also just for social responsibility goals. And it kind of got hijacked into this tool of totalitarianism. I, I sometimes say it's like the one ring from the Lord of the Rings. Because it gives such an enormous amount of control over such a small thing. Uh, if BlackRock doesn't like your ESG score, they might sell all your shares uh, and tank your stock, for example, and they may hold you know, a sizable percentage of those. They may show up uh, holding those substantial amounts and proxy vote to make sure that you implement these policies. They may withhold investment capital or give you uh, bad rates, citing that you are a long-term sustainability risk 
But the problem is, is that while maybe environmental policy, social policy, governance policy have something to do with long-term success and profitability of a company, and maybe they're even good in and of themselves for other reasons, it is not good when the small number of actors have this much control over the entire market. And in fact, what you see under the environmental, social, and governance uh, standards is in fact that the decisions are arbitrary. So with an environmental, while we might be able to debate what makes sound environmental policy, and certainly nobody wants anybody pumping, say, loads of chemicals into the river like happened 100 years ago, uh, what you see is that the model that is promoted within the environmental ESG score is what is known as climate justice, which is that they're going to force you know green energy, um, no fossil fuels whatsoever, divestment from fossil fuels, carbon taxes. Um, they're also going to uh, rather arbitrarily decide what constitutes an environmental good. For example, with COVID-19, even though there are billions of masks polluting the ocean now, using masks reduce the environmental hazard of the virus, and therefore lots and lots of masks and mandating masks at your workplace was considered good environmental practice. Climate justice is the application of global communism to the uh, concept of climate change so that they can take rich nations and get them to uh, break themselves financially while pretending to prop up poor nations, which are being held up as, 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 as tokenistic props for this project. So it is a global financial redistribution scheme using climate change as the excuse. And of course, the number of things that they can implement when they have arbitrary power through climate, not just climate accords, not just divestment from certain forms of energy, but, uh, you know, going so far as to limit the amount of travel that you can have to maybe none, uh, to climate lockdowns, etc., cetera, uh, are all things that are on the table. So the environmental score is a, is a means for using climate change as an excuse to implement communist policy and um, arbitrary power, which of course is redundant. The social score is even more explicitly Marxist in its origin because it is short for social justice score. Why are there so many DEI officers in so many organizations getting paid a quarter million dollars a year or at least over a hundred thousand dollars a year and they hire more and more and more of these commissars? Well, the reason is because your social score for ESG goes up when you implement the social justice identity Marxist theories like critical race theory, queer theory, gender theory, um, comprehensive sex education, and so on. Uh, you name it, whatever the the social justice theory of the day is, your social score goes up when you implement according to diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging programs, and it goes down if you buck, challenge, or don't go along with those. And so hiring a diversity commissar for your business raises your social score. Um, so again, you have arbitrary power now with equity, which is literally socialism, uh, as the primary uh, mechanism by which you're it's determined whether or not you're being socially responsible. Of course, again, this is arbitrary power. As the conflict in between Russia and Ukraine came out, they floated the idea that the, your social score under ESG would go up if you invested in weapons or if you were a weapons manufacturer, uh, so Halliburton or something like that, because it contributes to a global social positive good in their eyes if you supply the Ukrainians with weapons to fight the Russians for whatever reasons they have and this small group of people who make these decisions. Governance, of course, is corporate governance, and this is a split thing. Yes and no, there are good things where there is good corporate management and there are other things. And the whole thing is um, 
again, an excuse for arbitrary power. One of the easiest ways to get your governance score to go up is to install these commissars, to adopt some kind of a sustainability protocol as outlined, say, by the United Nations or something like this. And so it's completely arbitrary. Of course, the World Economic Forum, with all the weird things it's doing and all of the totalitarian things it's doing, is a big promoter of ESG. They say that ESG is the path to a sustainable and inclusive future. And so you see the real purpose behind requiring ESG for investment capital if you want to do a startup or if you want to get more capital for your existing company or to get yourself into asset management or if you're an institution like a public university or school system to have your assets managed by these firms at all. Uh, having to play ball according to these policies, which are ultimately an excuse for arbitrary power. And when I talk about installing DEI commissars at, you know, 100000 to a quarter million dollars a pop, there's also ESG officers who come in and they try to make sure that your company is compliant. And those are often getting paid seven figures. So it's a very corrupt industry. But most importantly, it is it cre ESG creates a de facto trust, monopoly type trust or even cartel behavior run by these small number of institutions, again, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, uh, maybe Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo, these massive asset management firms, and they are running it like a cartel. If it was something where there were different ESG scores and you could compete about what it means and people could see you know, which one does what and your score is still high, depending on with different theories rather than, say, some 20 to 50 people or something making the decisions about what qualifies as good ESG and bad ESG, uh, maybe we'd be in a different circumstance. But what this is doing in practice, and this is what lawmakers need to be looking at particularly, is it's allowing for corporations to create mega trusts. So trust behavior is, of course, illegal. Antitrust laws are uh, in place to stop this. And what you have here is a way to create a mega trust among many, maybe thousands of corporations at the same time without anybody having to go sign any kind of contract whatsoever. You just tie up all their investment money into something that they all have to sign on to. Like I tell people very frequently, you don't need a conspiracy, even if there is one, when you have a cult. And this metric creates a de facto trust without any of the usual legal uh tools that create the trust. And so lawmakers, policymakers, and executives need to start thinking of ways that they can attack this on antitrust law, uh, existing policy, or even crafting new policy that targets it directly. Because this is what is dragging the world woke. This is why go woke, go broke doesn't work in reality. This is a violation of uh, shareholder trust shifting over to these ESG so-called stakeholders who are unappointed, or sorry, are appointed unelected technocrats, and so um, there are a lot of reasons why ESG needs to be thought of as possibly felonious uh, behavior. It is in violation of shareholder fiduciary trust, and it is creating a cartel situation where the big banks are kind of organized. I should say the big investment firms are organizing hundreds or even thousands of corporations to all play along along the same environmental, social, and governance agendas, uh, even without having the kind of old school backroom deals that we associate with actual trust behavior. Although these things are discussed and hammered out in kind of those exact same environments. So ESG is a catastrophe. It is the scam of the century. Its objective is so-called sustainability, which is going to be also the arbitrary decision of these same so-called stakeholders. And all of capitalism, 
the entire market is being dragged around like a bull with a ring through its nose, and the name of that ring is ESG. It is of utmost importance that lawmakers and other policymakers think of ways to challenge and stop the monopoly created by ESG.